coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Spreading the DDoS disease and selling the cure. We call it double dipping and we'll tell you all about it on this week's episode. Plus, the audit results of TrueCrypt's replacements is in and a comprehensive history of the most important events that have shaped the SSL ecosystem. Plus, your great questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 289 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Well, I'm glad you asked. All of our downloads and our live stream is brought to you by ScaleEngine.com. Go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. Thank you for sticking with me through all the technical issues as we get going on this here's episode. And 289, by the way, I'm excited because not only is it just before I get all of my Halloween shenanigans going, but it's also one episode before we record our double episode for Meet BSD. And I want to make sure we mention it right here at the top of the show Come say hi to Alan and I at Meet BSD and Chris Moore, producer Q5Sys. But more importantly, if you, want to get our, if you want to get your question, our opinion, or something like that on the show, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. We're going to be doing a double episode next week. Yeah, and definitely check out Meet BSD. It's an uncon- or a hybrid unconference. So, what does that uh, mean? It's, so instead of a regular conference, which is just a bunch of lectures, basically, where you know, there's 20 odd speakers or whatever, and everybody just sits in rows and listens to them talk and maybe ask a question at the end. Um, there's some of that, but there's also unconferency stuff. So we have birds of a feather session. So, uh, at the beginning, everybody goes around and introduces themselves and we kind of come up with a list of topics that people want to talk about and we'll break up into smaller groups and actually just have little group discussions about those. Uh, so we have that there's going to be a panel just about ZFS. It'll be, uh, myself, Matt Aaron's, uh, Josh Petzl from IX Systems and all the ZFS experts we get our hands on <laughs> on a panel, and we'll just take questions for an hour. Uh, you know, if you have a ZFS question, it's a great place to do that. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, the people that do Beehive are going to be there, lots of other stuff. Uh, I think we're going to have um, a bunch of other unconferency stuff, including uh, Stump the Chump, uh, Hot Seat, and maybe even uh, Speed Geeking, hmm. and a bunch of other, you know, slightly more social interaction type things instead of just falling asleep listening to uh, an hour-long talk. Um, it, uh, out of all of the conferences that I'm going to go to at the end of the year, this looks like one of the coolest ones to go to. Um, mm-hmm. And it's put on by one of our sponsors, which is awesome. But also, it sounds like I might get a chance to just hang out with you and Chris Moore from the BSG exactly. Show. So that's, that's enough right there for me, Alan. I It'll help it. me because I, I missed out on Linux Fest this year. Uh, you know, the the conference in JB's backyard. So I'll finally get to see a couple of you guys. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. So meetbsd.com is where you go if you want to hang out with Alan and I. But Alan, that's not what we're here today to talk about. We have so much news. We have great feedback. And we have a rock and roundup. But first, let's talk about this article from Mr. Krebs on security. Yes. Spreading the DDoS disease and selling the cure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh... Krebs has uh, continued his digging into the denial of service for higher businesses on the internet. I would imagine and come so. Up with some pretty interesting findings. Some really good, solid research here as well. 
Uh, so it says earlier this month, a hacker released the source code for Mira, the malware strain that was used to launch that 620 gigabit per second denial of service attack against Krebs' site back in September. It's like, oh, it's the end of October already. That's ridiculous. I know. I know. It's amazing um, that this is now like news that's passed. Yeah. Uh, the attack came in apparent retribution for a story Krebs posted, uh, you know, directly uh, preceding the arrest of two Israeli men for allegedly running an online attack for hire service called VDOS. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out the site where the Mira source code was leaked had some very interesting things in common with the place VDOS called home. Oh, really? Yes. So uh, the domain name where the Mira source code was originally registered was uh, Santa's Big Candy Cane.cx. Sounds legit. Whatever. Um, it was registered with a domain name registrar that was also used to register the now defunct DDoS for hire service VDOS-S.com. <laughs> Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, that's not terribly uh, abnormal, right? You know, there, there are only no, so many domain registrars and lots sure. of people use, uh, you know, it's like, oh, these two sites both used uh, hover.com. Yeah. Millions and millions of domains. In that I case. feel like, well, I feel like hover.com and day by night uh, registrars are totally different categories. Right. Well, we didn't say it was a day by fly by night registrar yet. You're, you've read the story, you cheater. <laughs> 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 so anyway, so Krebs says, normally this would not be remarkable since most domain registrars have thousands or millions of domains in their stable. But in this case, it's interesting mainly because this particular registrar yeah. uh, used yeah. for both of these domains is a company called NameCentral.com. Oh! Uh, and has apparently been used to register a total of 38 domains since its inception in 2012. So that's... in. Entirely, their entire point of business. That's well, what they do. Uh, That's we'll, what they we'll, do, we'll, Alan. We'll talk to that in a little bit. Uh-huh. But, but basically, a domain registrar with only 38 domains is really strange. Uh, because to get accredited by ICANN to sell domains like that, it's $3,500 plus $4,000 a year. Okay. Why would someone pay all that money just to do only sell 38 domains? If that's the only thing I'm doing, I wouldn't. Yeah, exactly. Um, then Krebs goes on to say, what's more, a cursory look at other domains registered via NameCentral.com uh, reveals that the number of other DDoS for si- uh, higher services, known as booters or stressors, are also on the list. Uh, VDOS, before it was taken down by authorities, thanks to Krebs, was hacked, and uh, its user database and history were posted online. From this data, Krebs was able to gather a list of the different uh, DDoS for hire services that were just reselling VDOS. Uh, basically, you'd set up your own DDoS for hire service, but what you would do is after you get paid by people, you would just call the VDOS API and have VDOS do the attack for you and you know, basically charge more money and keep the difference. Hmm. Uh, okay, okay. A number of these VDOS resellers were registered through this name central uh, registrar indicating either that they were related or, you know, possibly just additional names for the same site uh, or that this registrar had something else to do with it. Uh, Some of the services they had there include 831-44692.com and vstress.net, both of which were VDOS resellers. Uh, Other DDoS for hire customers registered through NameCentral include xboot.net. Okay. Okay. 
X red stressor. Yeah, man. Yeah, that sounds legit. Sorry. Oh, sorry. X rated stressor. I see how they spell that now. Uh, snow stressor, easy stress, uh, exile stress, diamond stressor, uh, ddos.pw, rebelsecurity.net, uh-huh. and beststressors.com. Best stressors. So it seems like a lot of these might have actually been just different domains and sites for the same company. Yeah. Uh, you know, that way, if one of them gets a bad reputation, people just find the other one, which is in the end is actually the same company or something. Mm-hmm. Or you know, some of them look like they've targeted Chinese people, where other ones were targeting uh, different verticals. Yep. Yeah. Basically, you know, it's something I've considered with Scale Engine. It's like you know, we got a site that's all businessy, and then a, a site that's got you know plain speak, and then a site that's got. You know, advertising specifically to churches and one that's to, you know, porn sites <laughs> or whatever. Anyway, uh, so Krebs got in touch uh, actually, with the uh, owner of yeah. Name Central. I think that's that's a very interesting conversation. But Which, that could be – it's got, that should probably be its own show. Yes. <laughs> Targeting uh, so, those different groups, yeah. Ah, yes. Uh, name Central's current owner is a 19-year-old California man uh, by the name of Jesse Wu. Um, he responded to questions emailed from Krebs on Security. Uh, we said Name, uh, Name Central's policy on abuse was inspired by Cloudflare, the denial of service protection company that guards Name Central and most of the other uh, above-mentioned DDoS for hire sites from attack uh, of the very same kind. Okay. Uh, so Cloudflare provides protection for the DOS for hire sites uh, in what's a kind of an interesting relationship they could have there. Uh, when asked about why the registrar had so few domains, Wu said, like most other registrars, we register domains only as a value-added service. Uh, we have more domains than that. I'm not willing to say how many. But primarily, we make our money on uh, website, DDoS protection, and e-commerce protection. Funny, it's like, if you sell the DDoS protection service, why are you protecting your site with Cloudflare? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, Wu says, we have a policy inspired by Cloudflare's similar policy that we ourselves will remain content neutral and in the support of uh-huh. an open internet. We will always, uh, we'll almost never remove a registration or stop almost. providing services. And furthermore, we'll take any effort to ensure that registrations cannot be influenced by anyone besides the actual registrant making a, a change themselves, <sighs> even if a website makes us uncomfortable. Uh-huh. However, as a U.S.-based company, we are held to U.S. laws. So if we receive a valid court order to stop providing services to a client or to turn off or disable a domain, we will happily comply with such an order. And it goes on to say that they've never gotten such a thing. Uh, and then Krebs goes on to say, Taking a page from Cloudflare indeed, I've long taken Cloudflare to task for granting DDoS protection services uh, for countless DDoS for hire services uh, to no avail. I've maintained that Cloudflare has a blatant conflict of interest here in that the DDoS for hire industry would quickly blast itself into oblivion because the proprietors of these attack services like nothing more than to turn their uh, attack cannons on each other. Cloudflare has steadfastly maintained uh, that picking and choosing who gets to use their network is a slippery slope and it will not venue uh, or venture towards it. Uh, the other interesting thing there is obviously Cloudflare gets more business if the DDoS for hire services remain in business and DDoS people make people switch to Cloudflare. It's sort of like the antivirus company makes more money as long as there's viruses. Yeah. People stop buying antivirus if, if computers stop getting viruses or whatever. Yeah. 
So uh, Krebs goes on, although Mr. Wu says he has nothing to do with the domains registered through NameCentral, public records filed elsewhere raised serious unanswered questions about the claims. Uh, Krebs found a paper trail linking a number of the DDoS for hire services to a person named Thomas McDonagall, uh, who at one point was listed as a director of NameCentral Limited in the UK. Oh. So he found a whole paper trail that uh, links this Thomas McDonagall uh, to... A bunch of names, including uh, that rapid uh, security and a bunch of the other domains registered there. Hmm. And then at one point was listed as the director of Name Central. Uh, okay. So Krebs says, now we are getting somewhere. Turns out Wu isn't really in the domain registrar business, not for money anyway. The real money in his response suggests that he's into selling DDoS protection against the very DDoS for higher services he is counting uh, among his domain registration <laughs> services. Jeez. And then Krebs managed to catch Wu in a lie. Um, the other company that you find in this list was uh, uh, Simplify NT Limited. Oh, okay. Or Simplifinity or something. I no, don't know I like Simplify NT. Okay. Uh, was registered by Mr. McGonagall uh, on October 29th of 2014. Turns out almost the exact same information included in the original website registration records for Jesse Wu's purchase of NameCentral.com was used for the domain uh, SimplifyNT.com, ah. which also was registered on October 29th of 2014, the same day. Yeah. Uh, I on. initially missed this domain because it was not registered through NameCentral. Uh, obviously, <laughs> NameCentral.com couldn't be registered by NameCentral.com. Um, so... Uh, at, at one point, Mr. Wu was claiming it was somebody trying to do a phishing attack against him and was like thanking Krebs for helping him detect it, uh, which probably wasn't the case. So Krebs says, if someone had fished Mr. Wu in this case, uh, they must have been very quick in the punch indeed because they registered it two years ago and on the same day that he yeah. bought his domain. Coincidence. Uh, in this case, Simplify NT domain registration records, Jesse Wu gave his email address as jesse at jjdev.ru. That domain is no longer active, but a cache copy of it at archive.org shows that it was once a web development business. The cache pages list another contract address, sales at jjdevelopments.org. I ordered a reverse whois lookup for, uh, from domaintools.com for all historic website registration records, included uh, the domain jjdevelopments.org anywhere in their records. The search returned 15 other domains, including several more apparent DDoS for Sire services, such as TWBooter69.com, TWBooter3.com, RateMyDDoS.com, and Desoboot.com. Uh, among the oldest and most innocuous of these 15 domains was MapleMystery.com, a fan site for the massive multiplayer online game MapleStory. Uh, another historic record lookup ordered uh, from DwayneTools.com showed that MapleMystery.com was originally registered in 2009 by a Denny and N and G. Um, as it happens, Denny NG is listed as the co-owner of the $1.6 million mm. uh, Walnut Creek, California home where Jesse, <laughs> until recently, lived with his mom, Cindy what? Wu. What? What? So I think this was basically when he was a little kid, he liked Maple Story, and he got his dad to buy a domain for him. Or his stepdad, <laughs> I guess, in this case. Yeah. Um, or yeah. something. But... It, it, is somehow related because <laughs> the guy owns the house that him and the kid and his mom lived in at the time. Although now he's a student at a university. Um, 
And then through some more digging, he found this another person that uses Name Central. Another domain of interest that was secured by a Name Central is data, datawagon.net, hmm. which is registered to the 19-year-old Christopher J. C.J. Skulty uh, Jr. Jr. Uh, DataWagon also bills itself as a DDoS mitigation firm. It appears Mr. Skulty built his DDoS protection empire out of his parents' $2.6 million Rye, New York home. Um, he's now a student at Clemson University, uh, according to his Facebook page. Krebs is really digging into these people. Yeah, I love uh, it. And more interesting, Krebs has actually talked to that person before. <laughs> Back in 2015, uh, this um, Skulty guy was in a cyber squatting suit with Domino's because he bought Domino's.pizza and was trying to sell it to them for a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He eventually lost that case. But when Krebs covered it, uh, Skulty didn't like what Krebs wrote about him. So he started DDoSing Krebs' Skype account and website back in 2015. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> then last year, Skulty formed a company in Florida along with a self-avowed spammer, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the anti-spam group SpamHa soon listed virtually all of DataWagon's internet address space as sources of spam. Uh, so Krebs goes on, uh, are either Mr. Wu or Mr. Skulty behind the Maria botnet attacks? I cannot say, but I'd be uh, willing to bet that one or both of them knows who is. Yeah. In any case, it would appear that both men have been uh, hit upon a very lucrative business model. You know, DDoS protection services... Uh, with connections to DDoS for hire services. Sounds an awful lot like racketeering to me. Mm. Right? It's like, a oh, nice website you have there. It'd be a shame if someone DDoSed it. It'd be a Maybe shame. Maybe you should pay me for DDoS Perhaps you should services. pay for protection. Yeah. And then, oh, you didn't? Okay. Your site's being DDoSed. Are you sure you don't want that protection now? Yeah, right. Coincidence. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you go and uh, read the Krebs article, he has uh, all kinds of... Uh, uh, of the paperwork and so on he dug up on them and there's all kinds of interesting things including uh, in a couple of cases it looks like these guys uh, lied about their age a couple of years ago when they weren't old enough oh yeah you know there's like uh, birthdates listed as, as so that they were 19 when they weren't oh yeah so oh really yeah. oh interesting and eventually they, when they were old enough they started using the real birthdays and so on <sighs> yep yeah, it's it's been funny to see well, how... Only slightly reminds me of some of the shenanigans I got up to when I was, you know, 15 on the internet. Oh, oh really? Oh, oh I can't let that just slide, out. Nothing bad, nothing bad. Just, <laughs> um, well, domain names used to cost $70 yeah. for two years. And being 15, I didn't have that money. .cx domains you how get much? for free... How much? Uh, it was $70 US for two years. I don't have that money right now. One year. I don't have yeah. that money right now. Um, <laughs> For a little while, .cx domains were free as a demo or something. Yeah, you could yeah. get the domain free yeah. for so many days. Yep. But if you didn't pay, they would take it and you wouldn't be able to just get it free again. Hmm. But you could get a different free one every 90 days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then this um, site came along. There was – first there was name – there was domain zero. Yeah. No, name zero. Name zero would give you a domain for free, but they put an ad bar across it and then loaded your actual website in a frame. Then later came Domain Zero, where they would give you the domain for free in exchange for you signing up for a whole bunch of magazines. Part of it was like wow. email stuff, but part of it was like getting shipped actual yeah. magazines. Yeah. Because they were trying to boost the subscription numbers for the magazines by giving subscriptions away for free. Man. 
right? Because then they could charge more for the advertisers for the magazine. Yeah. So anyway, eventually I started getting some of these domains. Although they were really weird. If you wanted to host the DNS yourself, it cost extra. If you let them host the DNS for you, it was free. But we did weird things with it for, for IRC and stuff way back in the day. Um, I, I guess... How how do you know like if if you're if you're someone who all of a sudden finds themselves experiencing a DDoS attack, how do you know you're not necessarily buying protection from a company that is necessarily facilitating DDoS attacks? Right. Uh, well, you'd have to probably go to one of the reputable ones. I know a couple off the top of my head. Yeah, but that's because you follow the industry. Do you see well, what like, the yes, problem is there? I, because I used to do IRC hosting. I used to get yeah. DDoS constantly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like if I'm I'm like every every single state in the United States of America has three or four banks that are like independent quote unquote banks that that they wouldn't have any idea what to do. I'm just thinking back from my previous experience, like banks would have no freaking idea how to deal with this and not yep. sign up with somebody who's a totally phony phony service yep uh you know maybe they find one of the good ones like what krebs was using before he got kicked off of it for getting attacked too big yeah yeah it does require a certain level of but, you know, um, even those guys i would say are extortionists because they you know they want to charge krebs like two hundred thousand dollars or something to keep the service with them how would you solve the problem um I gave a talk at EuroBSDCon in 2013. Sadly, the videos from that year never got edited and put up. Uh, but I have given a talk about some strategies for it. None of them are all that cheap. How so? Uh, well, basically, you either build your own DDoS mitigation system by Which having a lot of services in a lot me. of places. That just sounds crazy uh, to me. Exactly. Uh, or you pay one of the yeah. big ones and I kind of cover the different types. Yeah. You know, some of them are, are like uh, what Krebs had, which you pay. Uh, you basically point your DNS at the service, like Akamai Prolexic or Black Lotus or whatever, um, and all incoming traffic goes to them. They run it through their machines and they filter out whatever they think is attack traffic, and then only the clean traffic. They then use GRE to basically make a tunnel back to your actual data center where your website is, and drop the traffic off there, and then. Uh, Do you feel like these services are prepared for the type of media or project that has big, all of a sudden releases? Well, uh, so Prolexic was bought by Akamai, which is one of the big CDNs, and you know they are what um, Justin.tv used to use. Yeah, but when they got by Amazon, I think that changed. I'm not uh, sure, but it does, it does seem like there was a transition. So, yeah. so Akamai is big. Like they they handle Microsoft updates. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so and, and and iTunes and, like and iOS. Like, uh, yeah. Well, iTunes uses a bit of a bunch of different things. Most iTunes and and iPhone updates actually come from Limelight, but oh, they will they also mix it. They, basically, to keep their bill down, Amazon or sorry, uh, Apple uses a bunch of the CDN so they don't cause any one of them to have to build more infrastructure to be able to handle the spikes. So you know, they. Like load balance across multiple CDNs. <laughs> I like to fantasize. Let's let, let's say like FreeBSD or FreeNAS or uh, well, FreeNAS CDN is Scale Engine. <laughs> I know. Uh, and FreeBSD has their own CDN built out of donated things. Right. So what happens if instead of one million users, let's say five hundred million try to download it? They, ha- they would well, have to fundamentally re-engineer it. 
Partly, yes. Although the nice thing about HP download is when more people show up, everybody just downloads a little bit slower. And it kind of works. The, the difficult one is a live stream. Yeah. Because if the live stream is one megabit, if you send anybody less than one megabit, they now can't watch one second of video per second. And maybe they have a two or three second buffer, but that's mm. it, right? You, everybody wants fresh live stream. <laughs> uh, so very quickly, everybody's live stream starts pausing and stopping. Like, so if you have enough, if your server has enough capacity to, to have a thousand people watching, right, then uh, it's fine. And as soon as you go to a thousand and one people watching, everybody starts stalling and pausing. Whereas if you have enough capacity for a thousand people to download one megabit a second of, of free NAS, and you add a thousand and one person, everybody just downloads at you know, 0.99 megabits yeah. per second. And really, as a user, do one. I care if for, like, most of it I'm getting a megabit a second and for, like, three minutes of the download total I get 700k a second? I don't care. Right. For, for a download, it doesn't matter. I don't care. For a live stream, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So and that's, that's what makes my life more difficult. If, yeah. if everything was just the JB downloads and the, and the FreeNAS update downloads and the packages for TrueOS and so on, yeah. my life, I wouldn't even have to... Even... Even Google struggles. Uh, like I uh, just yesterday, we were trying to live stream the uh, 2016 presidential debate, the third one. Yes, and so we're like other large podcasting networks and a bunch of other things, and you know everything came under like total load. Yeah, yeah. Well, because just that many more people were trying to watch mm-hmm. all this stuff than mm-hmm. usual, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, it also happens to coincide with prime time regular YouTubing. Yeah. <laughs> what a mess. <laughs> you know, and you look at networks like our first sponsor, Ting, techsnap.ting.com. You know, it's the only way that makes sense. You just pay for what you use. And sure, somebody can come along and they can VC fund something crazy. But really, at the end of the day, something you know that's going to stick around is pay for what you use. Let's be honest. Techsnap.ting.com. You pay for your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. And that's yeah, it. Well, cause the other thing is like, you know, Ting kind of showed up out of nowhere, but the company behind Ting has been around since the beginning of the internet, right? Like, they're a real company that's been around the whole time, right? They're not just somebody that just showed up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is two cows. Yeah. They were the first place after Namecheap where, or after um, yeah. uh, Network Solutions where you could actually buy a domain name. And They and, invented the whole concept of reselling uh, access to letting people start a small registrar without having to pay that $7,000. And that is a huge part of Ting. You know, and, and I think they've, they've learned from all of that and they've really, they've really kind of internalized that and that's when they launched Ting. Textapp.ting.com, they got GSM and CDMA networks that you get to choose from. You pick whatever works better in your area, and then you just sign up for Ting. Now, if you want to go grab a new device, go grab an unlocked one. That's the best way to do it. But check out their BYOD page because they have an early termination relief program so they can get you out of a contract. That's nice. Plus, on top of all of that, if you want to grab a new device, say you're just going to make a clean switch. You just go buy the device from the Play Store, from Newegg, wherever you're going to – Amazon. I don't care. I'm Honey Badger. Wherever you get the device, grab it and make sure it works with Ting and then bring it over. You can get a SIM card for $9 and there's no contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. Now, I think this is actually super useful for TechSnap audience members because – before I was uh, Lucky Chris making uh, my living on the internet, I would absolutely 
absolutely find myself in situations where I needed an internet connection either to test, to do remote connection to connectivity testing, to do penetration testing, whatever it might be. I needed a remote connection. But I didn't need it 30 days a week. I needed it two days a week. Mm, maybe I needed it. Maybe I needed it two days a week and needed it for about four hours while I'm driving. Have you been there? TechSnap.ting.com. You just pay for what you use. It's really simple. There's no contract. There's no early termination fee. It's $6 per line. And they have a really simple litmus test. Go over there. Click on what would you save and see. No hold customer service. It's really nice. And if you're a cord cutter like I am, Ting's all on board. In fact, uh, I got to say, I... I am a Sling TV user, but I have sort of from a distance looked at the PlayStation View and thought, gosh, if I just got a freaking PlayStation, I could get VR, I could get some live streaming. Gosh, that grass, that grass is so green. Have you been there? I have too. And so it's nice to have a service like Ting just put numbers numbers by numbers, side by side, how do they stack up? Even if you're not a Ting customer, you can find that useful. Go to techsnap.ting.com, try their savings calculator, switch over to their blog, and look at their Sling TV versus PlayStation View, which is surprisingly applicable to me. And if you want to get a smartphone that still gets updates, but you're not really necessarily feeling like spending $700 to get the latest Pixel, they have five wise smartphone choices for less than 200 US dollars. No contract, no early termination fee, only pay for what you use. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to TechSnap and Ting for all these damn episodes. We wouldn't be able to do this episode of TechSnap without Ting, and we wouldn't be here without Ting. So thank you to Ting. TechSnap.ting.com. And thank you to everybody for sponsoring and supporting us and keeping us go for 289 freaking weeks in a row without a break. TechSnap.ting.com. All right, Mr. Jude. So I, I, I roughly covered this like from like a 10,000-foot uh, like view Vericrypt, which is a fork of or a continuation of TrueCrypt, and mm-hmm. and for and really in all practical purposes, the only thing that matters for our audience is you can mount TrueCrypt volumes using Vericrypt. They've taken the absolutely necessary step of getting their entire freaking project audited, and we've gotten a little glimpse of the first results. Well, yeah. So there's a couple of things. So yeah, there was an audit of TrueCrypt before the fork, right? Which we covered, and so th- what this covers is. Did they fix the things that were identified in the previous thing from TrueCrypt? Ah. And then it, the rest of the audit is focused only on things that Vericrypt has added that weren't in TrueCrypt. So they were looking at the original source code of TrueCrypt when they well, started this, this. This one only looked at the new what changes Vericrypt has made since they forked from TrueCrypt. So are we talking about two separate audits? Yes. So there, there's an original audit that was done of TrueCrypt a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and which then this we, audit we covered. Yeah, 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 and this audit is brand new; just okay. came out, uh, and it's of what yeah. Veracrypt is, is auditing the changes that Veracrypt has and, made. And, and and I think it's it's yeah. fair to say that if if uh, if you use TrueCrypt to encrypt a volume, or you have a you have a boot set up with TrueCrypt, or you have a, a, any kind of like external devices encrypted with TrueCrypt, when when their project said I'm done, Veracrypt was likely your best mm-hmm. go to, right? Yeah, 
uh, and but there was some concern. It's like, do the main new maintainers actually know what they're doing? And uh, that's basically what this audit comes to show. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, if you want something that's not, uh, you know, Microsoft's encryption on Windows, it's really one of your only choices. Yeah, or if you don't want BitLocker and you don't want Lux and you want yeah. something that's third party. Or if you want something that can move back and forth between Windows, Mac, and Linux. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, for a USB stick, it works pretty good. Now, uh, a, a lot of this focused on the bootloader stuff, which is for obviously for encrypting the full disk as well. So anyway, uh, we can start digging into that now. So um, the Quirks Lab audit of Veracrypt has been completed, and this is the public release of the results. Uh, the results weren't released publicly as soon as the audit was done because they gave Veracrypt time to fix some of the problems that they did find. Mm-hmm. So the quick and dirty is that Veracrypt 1.18 and its bootloaders were evaluated. Uh, this release includes a number of uh, new features, including non-Western developed encryption options, a bootloader that supports UEFI and modern BIOSes, and uh, more. Okay. So these are the things that uh, have been added yeah. since the fork from TrueCrypt. Okay. Uh, across all that, Quirks Lab found eight critical vulnerabilities, three medium vulnerabilities, and 15 low or information disclosure vulnerabilities slash concerns. Uh, they say, this public disclosure of these vulnerabilities coincides with the release of Veracrypt 1.19, which fixes the vast majority of these high-priority concerns. Some of these issues have not been fixed due to their high complexity of the proposed fixes, but workarounds have been presented in the documentation for Veracrypt so users know how to avoid the problem. So, uh, I guess, high-level takeaway you, is upgrade to 1.19. Yes, if you upgrade to 1.19, everything talked about here is fixed Okay. or there's a way to work around the, okay. the shortcuts. Okay. Uh, so they say uh, here, Veracrypt is much safer after this audit, and the fixes applied to the software mean that the world is safer when using this software. Uh, the authors of the audit say, I- I'd like to extend special thanks to uh, Fred, Jean-Baptiste, and Marion at Quirks Lab for conducting the audit. Uh, Mournier at Idrix, which is the company that's taken over uh, maintenance of Veracrypt. Um, for their enthusiastic participation and continued development of this critical open source software, and for Viking VPN and DuckDuckGo and all the other individual donors for funding the audit to make it possible. DuckDuckGo, huh? Yep. Uh, and uh, Viking VPN. We have all made uh, the digital world a little bit safer uh, because of it. So this report describes the results of the security assessment on Veracrypt 1.18 made by Quirks Lab between August 16th and September 14th of 2016, hmm. which was funded by the OSTIF. Uh, two Quirks Lab engineers worked on this audit uh, for a total of 32 man days of study. Okay. Uh, so the audit followed two lines of work. The first was analysis, uh, the analysis of the fixes introduced in Veracrypt after the results of the Open Crypto Audit product Project's audit, the Open Crypto Audit Project's audit of TrueCrypt 7.1a when that was published. So the first thing that this audit looked at was the fixes that had been done since the previous audit by the other people. Yeah. And then secondly, the assessment of Veracrypt's features that weren't present in TrueCrypt to make sure that the features they're adding aren't new vulnerabilities. Okay. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing to know, really. Yeah. So um, they say Veracrypt is a hard-to-maintain project. Deep knowledge of several operating systems of the Windows kernel and of the system boot chain and good concepts in cryptography are required. Yeah. The improvements made by Idrix demonstrate that they possess these skills. So I think that uh, is a definite big thumbs up on uh, the new maintainers of Veracrypt. 
Uh, they say uh, vulnerabilities. So then they break down the vulnerabilities and say the vulnerabilities that require substantial modification of the code or the architecture of the project that have not been fixed include the uh, TrueCrypt IOCTL open test okay. has multiple issues. Sure. And uh, this would need to change the application behavior and it's something people wouldn't expect when upgrading. So they're hesitant to make that change right now. The encrypted data units function lacks error handling and they would basically have to design mm. redesign a lot of stuff to have that function be able yeah. to return errors and yeah, so on. Yeah, that makes sense. And the AES implementation is susceptible to a cache timing attacks. This would require a full rewrite of the AES implementation. However, that's mitigated by the fact that if you have the AES NI um, feature in your CPU, it uses that, and that one doesn't have the timing attack. And so it means on most hardware, the code that's vulnerable isn't actually used because yeah. it's replaced by the faster hardware offload. But they obviously should still fix the AES implementation anyway. Uh, and then there are some vulnerabilities that they didn't fix because it would make Veracrypt incompatible with TrueCrypt, which is obviously one of the goals is to allow people to Legacy. upgrade. Uh, now, you know, most of these you could upgrade, but then it means you could never open it on TrueCrypt again. And uh, at least for now, Veracrypt, I think, wants to keep some of that. So the key file mixing is currently not cryptographically sound because they just use a CRC32, mm. and so that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is unauthenticated ciphertext in the volume header, which, again, is because they're using a CRC32, which is only meant to check that an error hasn't been introduced, not that it hasn't been modified. So... You know, because the CRC32 is, is like a 32-bit number versus, you know, like a, a SHA-512 that's a 512-bit number, it means that it's much easier to get a collision. So you can ah. fairly easily construct a okay. different thing that will come up with the same hash, basically. Because <laughs> it's just a checksum, not a hash. There's a difference. Yeah. Uh, then they have uh, – the other one is uh, among the problems found during the audit uh, – some of them that they uh, list as the highest priority is um, – Currently, it offers the GOST 28147-89, which is a symmetric block cipher with a 64-bit block size. Uh, and obviously, the 64-bit block size is an issue that we saw come up recently. Yeah. But also, um, there's some other problems. And so, um, Faircrypt has actually gone through and removed that encryption option entirely. They say the implementation was unsafe. Uh, functionality for decrypting of volumes has, that use this cipher is still in place, but new volumes cannot be created using this cipher. Yeah, and to so me, that, to me that the way I would read that is if, some, if for some reason you have encrypted your volumes with a GOST cipher. You can still read them, but you can't create any new volumes yeah. that way. You, you, should you, should probably probably probably. you should probably migrate. Yeah. Yes. Um, they also say that the compression libraries were outdated or poorly written, and they must be <laughs> updated or replaced. Uh, and uh, so, in Veracrypt's change log, they have remove uh, they have the removal of xzip and xunzip. These were replaced with modern and more secure uh, zip libraries like libzip, uh, yeah. libzip, and so on. Um, and also, if the system is encrypted, the boot manager in EFI mode uh, could disclose the password, or in BIOS mode, it zeroed out the password, but it would still give the length of the password to an attacker. Mm. So in EFI mode, the attacker could get your password, and in BIOS mode, they could get the length of your password. Okay. Because although the password's erased, the length of it isn't. Uh, and there's more detail about how that actually works in the PDF. And they say, finally, 
The UEFI loader is not mature yet. However, its use has not been found to cause security problems from a cryptographic point of view. So, you know, but obviously that's a feature that didn't even exist in TrueCrypt because it wasn't around. Um, some of the other changes they have, uh, they say the they fixed all the vulnerabilities described in section 5.1, which is the password length can be determined from the classic bootloader. So that's been fixed. Um, they fixed 7.1, which is keystrokes not erased after authentication in UEFI. 7.2, which is sensitive data not correctly erased in EFI. Um, 7.3, which is memory corruption. 7.4, which is uh, null pointers, dead code, inconsistent data reads by the config read function, a bad pointer in the EFI get handles function, and a null pointer dereference in the graphics library, hmm. all of which have been fixed. And for the last couple things, they say uh, updates to user documentation for other vulnerabilities uh, that can be closed by user practices. So as long as the users follow the documentation, then the, those vulnerabilities are worked around for now. Alan, do you have the sense after looking at this audit, uh, if you're running Veracrypt 1.19 and you're not using the boot stuff, you're not using any of the EFI stuff, you're not using any of the encrypted boot stuff, and you're just having a few couple of volumes, maybe, you know, maybe, who knows, right? Like if, if I were two volumes, sick, I'd be yes. relatively comfortable with it. I, that's, that's my takeaway from this audit is that if as Wait, long as now, I'm not using the boot you know, stuff, if, I'm if actually feeling good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, most of the boot stuff has been fixed. Uh, in one, but, one, nine. Yeah. Um, you know, in general, if there were problems in TrueCrypt that were not found by the previous audit, this audit didn't even look for them. It was only looking at the newer stuff. But, you know, they only had so much time, and it made sense to focus on looking for the new bugs rather than uh, trying to find old ones. But and you, so, yes, they spent a lot of time in the bootloader, which is kind of important. And it's what made this most interesting for me because as the person who worked on the bootloader side of the FreeBSD yeah, one, yeah, <laughs> I was yeah, very yeah. curious. If it, it's like, oh, you know, i got to right. make sure that I don't keep the length of the password floating around somewhere. Yeah. Um, and so let's. I, I I can't I can't I can't channel properly Alan and Chris from whenever TrueCrypt shut down. But I, I seem to recall that one of the issues was it's too much. I I can't I I just can't. I just simply cannot make this right. I'm going to quit now. And it didn't feel right. Do you, do you remember that? Like it was simply well, like yeah. You know, in particular, those people were like, uh, well, when when TrueCrypt shut down, they they actually said. You know, we we know there's a vulnerability and we can't fix it or something. Yeah, that's what I recall too. It sounds very Achilles heel like. Uh, Now, none of the odds have found that, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Um, That is sort of the in the back of my mind. That's sort of the problem I have. Is I seem to remember TrueCrypt being like, "There's a serious problem here." Well, and the other thing is, we didn't expect um, a fork to be able to survive because the license on TrueCrypt didn't allow for that. Right. but since the original authors have gone away and never admitted their identity anyway, um, it's not like they're going to sue. Yeah, so they forked under Apache Two license, and uh, which is you know a relatively open, progressive license, and yeah. said, you know, we'd, we'd be happy if you'd like to come introduce yourself to sue us. And and they've been and, like, which might actually be slightly unfair in this case because it sounds like the people who wrote TrueCrypt could possibly be in big trouble if they admitted who they were. Okay, fair point. But right, there, does, there, was, there was some speculation that they these it was a side project of some people that worked at the NSA, and in which ha- case those people would be in in a large amount of trouble if it came out that 
I do. I do, though. However, all that accepted because what you just said sounds. Why not? Why not? That that seems like the legitimate explanation. But um, they've just been audited, and it seems like to me that as long as your as long as your technology is based on sound there, crypto, there are, crypto, yes, and, but there are better solutions if you don't need to move things around between OSs and so on. Okay, so assuming you don't have the requirement of needing to move data between machines and possible Windows and Linux and FreeBSD, like let's just assume you don't have that problem. What's the better solution for people watching this show? Right, well, or I guess, listening. You know, uh, the the true group people originally recommended you switch to BitKeeper, but I don't know that I would recommend that, that either. That seemed like a joke to me. Well, it was just like use the thing that's built into your OS. It's the one least likely to blow yeah, up in and, your face. And I think but. a lot of Linux users have switched to Lux. I think that mm-hmm. has that's definitely happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it would be really nice to have something like cross-platform. Yes, uh, and Dragonfly BSD, I think at some point had something that could do something like TrueCrypt. Oh, oh, really? And having read, having read through the the this. Uh, audit of and like you know they found or here's the problem with the pkcs and a couple other things um it seems close enough to the same kind of design concepts from the freebsd gelly one that it might be possible to make a freebsd driver for truecrypt ish type thing uh and also recently because of changes that went in this week i've been looking at the openbsd uh, oh yeah, soft rate encryption that they have, oh. and how it might be similar. And it's like, hmm, I'd really love to make something that could do all of them. But you know what I really want is I really want I want to be able to I just I don't actually do this, but I just want to be able to encrypt a USB thumb drive, and I want to be able to five years from now, I want to mount it on a Windows box, a Linux box, or a Mac box. Yep, or a BSD box. Like I just want that, and that's what it. it it, at least it feels well, like if, that's if you, what if you want promises. cold storage. If you want cold storage like that, then just make a disk image and then GPG encrypt it or something. Yeah, yeah, like, really. Re- regular. Right? Now, if you want yeah. something you can mount yeah. and read and write all the time, then that's when it gets more complicated. No, you're right though. If it's something that I just want, I want to make a tomb and I want to sing it. I want to sign it off. And you're right, GPG is really the way to go. It really For is something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or you know what? Roll it your freaking self. Roll it your no. freaking self. Come on, do it, do it. Just don't use, do your own crypto. Ever. Don't do your own crypto. Just um, what's the yeah. other thing I was going to say though? Um, the PDF has all the details. What was crypto? Something crypto. Something. Here's what I would say: Don't try to invent it yourself. Right, but there was something else I about can't crypto. Life me now. Um, nope, it's gone. Every single time we hear a story about a project or a company or the next dot-com thing. Oh, right. I know what it was now. Okay. Native encryption for ZFS is coming. Oh! Really? Yes. That could be huge. uh, Per file system. So in ZFS, you can have many file systems called data sets, right? So you can have different keys for each one or, say, only encrypt a couple of them. So, you know, uh, at Scale Engine, we could do a different one, uh, different encryption key for each customer, and that way only the customer has a key, and so on. Uh, but what this, the important thing what this lets you do is the way they've built it in ZFS, you can still check the checksum to do a scrub without having to have the key. No. And you can also How? use silver. How? So, so what they did is um, they used 
AED, which is uh, types of encryption that also provide you with a checksum. So in the checksum block in ZFS, you have 256 bits for the checksum, right? Because it uses Fletcher uh, 4, Fletcher 64s, or SHA-256 were the original options. So now what they do is they take only the first 128 bits of the regular, whichever checksum you choose, yeah. like whether it's SHA-512 or, or Fletcher 4 or whatever. No. And the second 128 bits are the, the uh, AAD from the encryption. So it means that uh, you can do a scrub and a resilver based on only the first half, the, the regular checksum, and basically resilver a failed hard drive and leave the encrypted data unmounted. Oh, and so that the key doesn't even have to be loaded in memory. Right. And, and basically, so this only works if, uh, well, it doesn't only work. Uh, it allows you to protect the data by manually unmounting the file system that with the protected information when you're not using it. And that way, nothing can ever happen to it because ZFS is protecting it from corruption and uh, it's encrypted. So nobody can read it or modify it without being detected. Man, you know how that would be sweet is on my free NAS. Mm-hmm. Well, in particular, it means you could, uh, instead of currently your options are encrypt nothing or encrypt every bit as it's going to the hard drive, Yeah, uh, this would allow you to say, everything's unencrypted for speed. I don't need to encrypt the episodes of BSD Now we're recording or no. episodes of TechSnap. Yeah. But here's my tax data over here in this file system. I need that encrypted. Hmm. And because it's my taxes, I'm going to unmount it, except for the like three times a year when I actually need to access last year's tax data or next year's hmm. tax data. And could you see a... I don't know, a couple of years down the road, that just comes to free NAS users as like a, a functionality of free NAS? I would hope to see it before the end of 2017. Hmm. So there's, there's uh, the code's been written and it's out for code review now, and it'll start being integrated into OSs once it's been reviewed. Nice. And that'll be available on FreeBSD, Illumos, Linux, Mac OS, everything that supports OpenZFS. Yeah, man. If 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 I was putting my name on the line, if I was trying to make a recommendation, if I was going to make a suggestion, now would be the time to recommend iX Systems. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That's the company behind the Free NAS project and all this kind of cool stuff that we really talk about because iX has been around since before the dot-com boom, and they realized that if we're going to be in this for the long haul, we've got to do this right. So they invest in the hardware, in the community, the outreach, and, and that's why they, they end up making great partnerships with companies like Intel, and they integrate the best Intel process, processors available, like from, from, from the free NAS units, the free NAS units for your own small business all the way up to absolute incredible scale. It is really something. They, they, you need one computer with eight processors, each with 10 cores, or if you need, you know, one <laughs> computer with like two cores and it takes no power. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a privilege to get to chat with iX Systems, and you might think too, like I definitely did. I remember what it was like. I got to make this quote. I got to write it up. I got to send it off. I, I don't have time for this. A sales call? Are you are you kidding me? Are you are you shitting me? I got to sit here on the phone and talk to these people. I don't have time for that. I can go to one of these other companies' websites. I can configure a system and get a quote within uh, I don't know fifteen minutes. Why do I why do I got to wait around for a phone call? Turns out it made all of the difference. Not only did it save me money, but it would have saved my client money too. iX Systems has a system be built around getting you the best hardware and solution for your problem. Now, secondarily, they're hoping to make some money, but realistically, they're happy if they just make a great initial relationship and then they yeah. build a relationship 
over time. Well, that was the thing that surprised me most is when I had first heard of them and hadn't tried them yet, I figured, you know, I know enough about the servers. I can buy the same parts they're going to sell me yes. for less. Yeah, I did the same well, thing. Turns out I did the same thing. <laughs> buying them from my local supplier actually costs more money than the yeah. completed server and, from IAC. And after I talked to them for like, I don't know, five minutes, I realized they knew way more than I did, even oh. though I thought I was the expert. Yeah. So if you go back to like a TechSnap episode like 20 or something like that, the, I fit the, the one where I built my first ZFS server. I remember. Yeah. And you remember all the problems I had. It's like I got this stuff off Newegg and then... The raid the the raid adapter. I yeah. didn't know not yeah. to buy a raid card, so I bought a raid adaptech raid card. <laughs> and it turns out while it claimed right on the box that it had a driver for FreeBSD, it was only for FreeBSD eight. And I wanted to use FreeBSD nine because it had newer ZFS. Um and all kinds of problems. Uh luckily I lucked out. The motherboard happened to have LSI built into it. Uh, an LSI controller built into it, but at the time it wasn't listed as supporting FreeBSD because the driver was only in 9, not in 8. So I moved the SATA cables or the SAS cables over and it started working. But, uh, you know, I you know the amount of trouble I've had over the years that would have been saved if I had known about IX when I built my first four servers. Uh, and that's why every server I've bought since has been from them, including the yeah. three I bought last week and yep. the uh, six I will buy this week. Yeah. Wow. Now, there is an endorsement yeah. right there. And honestly, the moment, the moment Jupiter Broadcasting is ready to spring on an enterprise class storage, even if it's for a small business or if it's something we want to last us for the next five years, absolutely, I'll go to IX. And it's not just storage either. And I think that might be a disservice because we talk about storage so much here on the show because you and I focus yes. on that. But yeah, there's so much more my, than that. Our jobs is so much based on storage, but every kind of server. Yeah. And, and, and again, I would say, I will just leave you with this and then we'll wrap it up. If... You want to recommend something and your name is attached to that and you want to be confident that you're recommending a company and a solution that will work for whoever it is, your client, your company, yourself, your own business. I want you to consider IX. I've tried them all and nobody does it like IX. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to support this show and learn more. IX Systems. And thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program and also, just totally unrelated, Super excited about Meet BSD because it's being sponsored by IX. I've been emailing the folks at IX about it. I'm looking forward to it. So if you're going to be at Meet BSD, that's an example of something where IX really steps up and gets involved with the community because they understand that super early, early investment in the community pays off for their business in the long term. Well, it's just, you know, uh, Meet BSD only happens every two years. And in the years where it's not, there's uh, a sister conference, uh, VBSDCon, that happens on the East Coast. Oh. And it's run by VeriSign for the same reason. Because, you know, they're like, all right, we, we run the .com and .net top-level domains. And we use a variety of operating systems to make sure a bug in one isn't going to take out all the name servers that run .com. <laughs> so we run like a third of the servers run FreeBSD. And we want to make sure that the FreeBSD community is going to stay healthy and still be around. So... You know, it doesn't cost us all that much in the long run to run a conference once every two years and get a bunch of them together. And it also means that now our engineers get to talk in person with some of the FreeBSD developers and make sure that, oh, we're actually going to support TCP fast open so that we can start doing DNS over TCP and avoid some of these um, reflection problems and so on and so on. It's funny what a, what a actual, like, DNA level difference that makes. Mm-hmm. And you don't – I and maybe perhaps people don't understand it until they've witnessed it. 
I, that's I, the hardest part. Yeah. You, you can describe it to people and they just it doesn't click until you I don't know if I got it until I started it. going to these events and understand the type of human to human relationships that created that lead to business opportunities. And uh, uh, I, and it might just be until until you go there you you don't fully well, even, understand. No uh, conferences aren't all the same either. Like the vibe at Linux Fest Northwest is very different than what I had been used to. Mm, okay. And I, I I definitely enjoyed it. It was a lot more um, kind of freedom. You weren't locked into the schedule as much. And uh, it was definitely more social and so on. But, uh, you know, I missed some of the other parts too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm really interesting to see how the other side lives at MeetBSD mm-hmm. too. And I'm really happy that IX Systems is one of the companies behind it. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to support the show. You can also download their white paper if you want to help grease the wheels up the ladder from you. And it's just a nice place to land to let them know that you heard about it here. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check out their great systems from storage to just compute and everything in between. Powered by those incredible Intel processors. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. So, Alan, uh, I felt like maybe this would be a moment in the the show where we have a little history lesson. Can you tell me about what's up next? Yes. (laughs) Uh, So, I found this uh, uh, cool website over at uh, feistyduck.com. Uh, which is a consulting company or something. And um, one of the people there has written a book, Bulletproof SSL and TLS. And from that, they've built this bit of a website here, which is a history of SSL slash TLS and PKI. Uh, basically, it's a, a scrolling timeline on a website that goes through the entire history from when SSL was invented back in 94 okay. through <laughs> uh, what changes we're going to have uh, with SSL and TLS going into 2018. Powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's just uh, really nicely designed and so on, too. But, uh, yeah, so if you just pull that up, you see uh, back in November of 1994, we have the beginning. SSL v2 was developed uh, at Netscape, uh, providing an encryption protocol designed to support the web as the hot new commerce platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first secure protocol version shipped in Netscape Navigator 1.1 in March of 1995. Oh, man, do you feel old when you hear that? Remember, before this... Everything that went over the internet was unencrypted, including a credit card number if you tried to order something. Yeah. And so they invented this SSL, or Alan, Secure Socket Layer. Do you remember trying to convince family members that it was okay to buy online? Do you remember that process before Amazon Not was really, huge? really, because um, I was so young at the time that I didn't have money, and then eventually I started <laughs> buying things online once I was older and so on. Uh, Fair enough. Well, the interesting one was watching the looks on their faces when money would come from the internet to our house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, I don't know. I have to tell about some of the crazy things happened when I was a kid. But, uh, you know, eventually when I started the shell provider and so I've got people sending me money and I'm making money off the internet. So, of course, it's okay to spend money on the internet. Hey, oh. You know, there I, I was able to kind of work around the problem slightly because. When I wanted to buy something, I didn't need to use my parents' credit card or something because I had the PayPal account for the company that already had money in it from our customers. So just instead of taking that money and sending it to my bank account, I could just buy stuff with my PayPal account, which is what led to some interesting things, including the you know trying to find just like I know what I want to buy now. I just need to find a place that'll sell it to me for PayPal instead of credit card, and then eventually PayPal gave me a credit card and I solved everything. <laughs> <laughs> It's basically a prepaid MasterCard for the balance of your PayPal yeah, account. So yeah, they wouldn't I, actually give me any credit, but yeah. it was quite useful. I still have it. I used it the other day. Anyway, uh, 1992, or sorry, 1994, Four, they invented yeah. SSL. So then, 
in November of 1995, a year later, they release SSL V3. So SSL V2 is shot down because of serious security issues. Consequently, Netscape scrambled to release SSL V3. This protocol seemed good enough for now, and the golden era of the web began. So interestingly, uh, so we knew SSL V2 was bad in 1995. And we were using it in 2015 <laughs> no, and wondering Alan. why it was causing trouble. No! That doesn't make... No! <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so luckily, SSLV2 is, is mostly dead now. Not quite entirely. Yeah. 20 years after we knew it was terrible. <clears throat> Then we go to January of 1999. So that's a big gap there. Just nothing between, you know, 95 to 99, everything was peachy. <laughs> okay. Uh, back in 1999, uh, TLS version 1.0 is released. Uh, in 1996, the Internet Engineering Task Force uh, created a working group, uh, formed it to standardize SSL. Because right at this point, SSL was just something that uh, Netscape came up with, right? It wasn't a standard. Uh, just lots of people implemented it because it was the only thing. But it wasn't a standard. So okay. the IETF created S, uh, TLS version 1.0. That's legit. Uh, but basically, they started in 1996. They just didn't finish until 1999. Uh, this is, uh, the process took three years, and then SSL v 1.0 was published as RFC 2246. And uh, Microsoft forced the name, uh, the <laughs> protocol name to change to transport layer security or TLS yep. instead of just being called SSL v4. I remember that. Because SSL was a Netscape thing. Yep. Uh, and so the standard should have a different name. Although uh, transport layer security is actually a better name. Although it doesn't necessarily apply to the transport layer. So maybe actually it should have been called application layer security. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know. It's definitely a better name than SSL, but it's probably not a great name. Anyway, then we have some interesting... Uh, they also color-coded it, so there's a red circle for this one. Uh, in 2001, somebody managed to get fraudulent Microsoft certificates. Mm. Uh, so someone just calls up VeriSign, who was sure. a certificate authority at the time, <laughs> claiming that they were from Microsoft, paid the $400, and got away with two code-signing certificates. Oh, These certificates had no special powers, but the owner's name is misleading and potentially dangerous. So I could write a virus, sign it with this code-signing certificate. When you double-click it, it would be like, are you sure you want to run this program from Microsoft Corporation? It's like, oh, yes, from Microsoft. It must be not a virus. Click. Boom. Um. Then there's a bit of a gap in the timeline. They don't really have anything until about 2006, but, you know, not much happened in that time as far as SSL was concerned. Anyway, in 2006, we had the release of TLS version 1.1. Okay. This new version of the TLS protocol uh, was released and codified as RFC 4346. This version addresses the beast attack. Uh, of course, nobody knew that the beast attack was a thing until five years later. But... This improvement in the TLS protocol fixed an attack that won't be invented for five years. But the attack still happened because nobody upgraded. <laughs> right? Anyway. I agree. Moving yeah. on to 2007. <laughs> okay. In 2007, we have the introduction of extended validation certificates. Now, that sounds legit, Alan. What's, what's the problem? So in the early days, CAs were strict about uh, identity verification before they gave you a certificate. Except for that case where VeriSign accidentally gave one out, right? Um, but 
Yeah. So it, it used to require a lot of money. It was hundreds and hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. And you had to actually do paperwork and like prove <laughs> yes. the company and I, all the stuff. Oh, I remember, necessary. dude. I remember. It was awful. And it letterheads and all of that shit. Yes. And then it, and it took like weeks basically to get yes. an SSL certificate. Uh, eventually, they invented DV certificates or domain uh, validated. So this means you prove that you control that domain name. So we're going to give you a certificate. And it, basically, that led to your $9 a year certificates that everybody uses now. Um, yeah. So eventually, the CAs realized that they can get away with less work and invented domain validated certificates uh, to restore the balance, or rather, for the certificate authorities to be able to charge hundreds of dollars again. They invented extended validation certificates, which was designed as a way to guarantee a connection between a domain name and a real life business entity. Obviously, you've probably seen these in some sites where the whole URL bar turns green and it's like yeah. you click and you can actually see the company's name and address. Um, you know, SSL was kind of always meant to be that, but obviously at the same time, we want to be able to, you know, have a private SSL certificate for your mail server, right? And so it's a good thing that we allow SSL to be without the paperwork, but for some sites it does make sense maybe to have that hard link between, you know, there's actually a company and you get to know their name uh, to prove this certificate. Then the hilarity starts. 2008, May. Debian has a flaw in its random number generator causing endless problems. Uh, it's discovered that a catastrophic programming error has been introduced to Debian in September of 2006, <laughs> uh, becoming part of the official release in April 2007. Uh-oh. Uh, and then in May of 2008, they found out this problem. Yeah. Uh, all private keys generated on vulnerable systems are insecure. So that's SSH keys, SSL keys, everything. Basically, instead of there being, uh, you know, thousands of bits of possible SSL uh, uh, of private keys, there are only 65,000 possible uh, keys, and it's terrible, right? It means you get brute force people SSH key yeah. by just trying yeah. all. To it's it's awful. It was terrible. Yes. Then we have uh, certificate misissuance. Uh, July of 2008, uh, Mike Zussman realizes that he can obtain a certificate for live.com, which is Microsoft sites, because he could register the email address SSL certificates at live.com. Right. And he, uh, lots of these email providers, it was possible to get some, you know, email yeah. address that yep. seemed official looking. <laughs> yep. Like, uh, often they didn't have abuse at live.com blocked off and so on. I mean, yeah. Uh, and so when he did domain control validation and you could send to this administrator email, then uh, they give you a certificate. So then uh, the baseline requirements, which we'll talk about a little bit, uh, specified that uh, the email address, the list of possible email addresses you can issue for certificate issuance is now a fix. So there's like, it has to be one of these four email addresses, and everybody knows not to give those out. And let anybody, any user, have access to those so that they can't do this. Uh, then, in August of 2008, TLS version 1.2 comes out. The new version of TLS is released uh, as RFC 5246, although hardly anyone notices. Uh, the major new feature is support for authenticated or AEAD encryption, which removes the need for streaming and block ciphers, thus inherently uh, getting rid of like CBC mode and so on. Oh, so. A, uh, TLS version 1.2 is really good, uh, but people don't really notice that it's released as a standard in August of 2008. Then we have December of 2008 here. Startcom issues a certificate. Continuing his probings of CA security, 
Mike Zussman uh, finds a flaw in Startcom's website that allows him to bypass owner verification entirely and get certificates for PayPal.com and Verisign.com. That's all. Yeah. Then CertStar. Uh, Eddie Nig, of, uh, who's CertCom's CTO and CEO at the time, discovers that CertStar, which is a Komodo partner, issues certificates without verifying domain ownership. Uh, he's able to get a certificate for Mozilla.org. So, you know, after it was proven Startcom had a problem, Startcom CTO started going after his competitors and finally they had the same problem. Yeah. Then worse, uh, Rogue Certificate MD5 considered harmful. Uh, a group of researchers led by uh, Alex Sotorov and Mark Stevens exploit uh, MD5's weaknesses to trick Rapid SSL into effectively giving them their own certificate authority certificate, uh, which they could then use to issue certificates for any website in the world. They backdated the root certificate to prevent uh, abuse so that it would be expired or whatever, but mm-hmm. MD5 uh, is promptly retired. Uh, full collisions in MD5 were discovered several years earlier yeah. in 2004, but most of the world ignored the finding, eventually prompting yeah. researchers now, to take action. Okay, so this is, uh, this is what, 2008? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, in 2008, uh, they realized that, oh, that thing we discovered in 2004, we should have fixed that by now. <laughs> Then, uh, moving on to 2009, in July of 2009, SSL Labs starts and allows you to, a better tool to test how good the SSL setup on your server is. Then we have uh, August of 2009, uh, Marsh Ray discovers that via renegotiation, one TCP connection can be used uh, to separate uh, for two separate TLS channels. Critically, from the server's perspective, there's only one data stream. Mm. Users are uh, abusive. Abuses are possible when one stream belongs to the user and another stream belongs to the victim. Right. Allowing you to basically hijack people's sessions. Then, uh, August again, Moxie Merlin Spike invents SSL Strip. Yeah. Uh, which basically allows you to, to force people's browsers to not use SSL uh, by hijacking plain text communications and tricking end users into believing that they actually are safe even when they're not. Right. Uh, and then, August, there's the null byte attack. At the Black Hat Conference in the U.S., Dan Kaminsky and Moxie Merlin-Sprike uh, independently demonstrate uh, silent man-in-the-middle attacks made possible by incorrectly handling, uh, incorrect handling of the null byte in all the major uh, SSL slash TLS stacks. Jeez. Then in 2010, uh, HSTS preloading. Uh, Chrome begins to preload uh, HTTP strict transport security information for some important websites. Uh, for the sites on the list, even the first connection is always secure, uh, preloading eventually open to everyone and semi-automated. But at this point, it was Google was only doing it for themselves and a couple of people they were worried I remember about. that. God, that seems like that wasn't that long ago now. Six years. <laughs> wow, dude. Actually, a bit more than six years ago. It was May of 2010. In August of 2010, SSL Labs did their state of SSL uh, that they published at Black Hat, kind of talking about some of the it's like, look how old this shit is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then EFF also started their SSL observatory, where right. they walk around the internet collecting all the certificates to try to look for patterns and, and that's, so on. And that's about when we got Speedy, too, right? Yep. Uh, the next one, September, is when Google starts the use of Speedy, a new multiplex protocol designed to be more efficient than HTTP. Crucially, Speedy will always uh, encrypt traffic with TLS. Okay. Uh, Google also starts to use false start, a new technique that speeds up the TLS handshake by allowing clients to send application data before the handshake is fully authenticated. So normally, you know, you start the connection and then get a reply back and then and go back and forth a couple times. This allows the client to start sending the encrypted data before the other side's finished setting up yeah. so that you don't, you know, 
for a lot of short-lived connections, it makes a big difference. You might remember better than I do, but uh, when uh, around the same time when Fire Sheep came out, wasn't TechSnap on the air at this point? I think we didn't start till 2011. I, I, I seem to. I remember you and I talking about Fire Sheet, but I can't remember if we did it on air or if it was just you and I in private conversations prior might, to text. Or it might have been on because at that time, like we would have been co-hosting last together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Fire Sheet. Uh, although it's uh, always been known that plain text communication is inherently insecure, a Firefox add-in called Fire Sheet catches the public's imagination. By making side cha- uh, side jacking trivially easy, mm-hmm. the tool is used for high pro- uh, high profile demonstrations, leading to many companies to adopt encryption by default. Yeah, I remember it was like it became an extension in Firefox, and you could be at Starbucks, and uh, as long as everyone was on the same Wi-Fi LAN, you would just watch their sessions in real time, and you could recreate their entire login session using yeah. FireSheep. I mean, it was. Scandalous! It was the easiest way ever to just rebuild people's entire sessions. You remember that? Yep. Firesheep was like, that was a big deal. That was like what brought HTTPS right into everyday system administrators' field of view, I think. Yep. Uh, Next up, we have uh, March 2011. Uh, The IETF attempts to formally deprecate sslv2 mm. and publishes rfc 6176 right according to ssl labs 54 percent of https servers still supported the obsolete protocol my god i, I this so all we deprecated it but more than half the servers still yep. used it yep and we know that that definitely wasn't fixed by 2015 yeah. when all the problems with hb uh, yeah. sslv2 yeah were found. yeah hmm. i remember yeah. talking about this this is mm-hmm. all starting to feel very familiar <laughs> and that's just the beginning, really. Because then you got Komodo, right? You got Komodo, you got DigiNotar. Yes, this is when it starts getting uh, rapid fire. Yeah, that's uh, a perfect timing March with the show, really. <laughs> Yes, uh, March 2011, Komodo reseller breached. And nine fraudulent certificates for seven high-profile domains are obtained by someone calling themselves Komodo Hacker. The attack was uh, detected quickly, and the certificates were revoked yeah. within hours. I remember all of this yep. very yes. clearly. That, now we're getting into TechSnap territory. Yes. Basically. Yeah. Uh, then in August, we have DigiNotar, a little-known Dutch certificate authority, uh, spectacularly implodes after Komodo hacker gains access to their systems and issues hundreds of fraudulent certificates. Right. DigiNotar tries to cover it up, but the incident is discovered when Chrome's public key pinning runs into fraudulent Gmail certificates. The events lead to a widespread unhappiness and attempts to design better approaches for public trust. Mm. I will note, we didn't come up with any. <laughs> we didn't actually adopt it. We came up with lots, didn't adopt any. Uh, that's when, uh, so Moxie Merlin Spike started Convergence, an attempt to design a different system for public trust based on the concept of uh, notaries. Although the project is promising, it's abandoned after browsers showed little interest in it. Yeah. Then Google started doing public key pinning. Uh, so Google begins the use of public key pinning in Chrome to verify the identities of its own properties. In the following years, this mechanism successfully discovers a number of misused certificates. Mm-hmm. Then here we are in June of 2011 and the beast attack. The beast attack was released uh, to exploit uh, predictable uh, initialization vectors in TLS 1.0. Even though this problem has been fixed in TLS 1.1, which was released in 2006, five years yeah. Uh, before this, yeah, and TLS 1.2, which was released in 2008, yeah, uh, no one actually uses these newer protocol versions. 
Browsers will take more than two years to deploy TLS 1.2 and servers many years longer. Uh, we have no choice but to rely on browser countermeasures for this in the meantime. <laughs> I mean, this is the first attack to show how rich uh, browser functionality can be abused to attack cryptography from a multiple vantage points. Many similar attacks will follow. Yes, I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, well put. Yeah. Uh, then November of 2011, Google deploys forward secrecy. Yeah. Uh, in a major improvement, Google deploys forward secrecy, making sure private key compromises can't be used to retroactively uncover captured encrypted traffic. So this means that this way, even if the NSA went and got Google's private keys, they wouldn't be able to trip any traffic encrypted after November of 2011. Mm-hmm. And that's probably when the NSA started... Uh, requiring Google give them a raw tap of the data. Yeah. Yeah, really. In 2012, insufficient entropy entropy in embedded devices. Yeah. Uh, Researchers study the quality of private keys on the public internet and discover that about 0.5% of RSA keys and 1% of DSA keys can be compromised due to insufficient entropy at the time of creation, mostly because they were created on embedded devices. (laughs) Yeah. But, oh, right. Yeah. With their tiny CPUs, those embedded devices yes. would take a very long time to come up with a certificate, and it wasn't random enough because they hadn't done enough. I remember we. I think we discussed this, Alan. I don't know about that one, but maybe. I that 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 point right there sounds very familiar. Then we have February of 2012. Uh, Chrome decides to stop checking for certificate rev- revocation. So the problem with this is when you connect to a website and get a certificate, Yeah, you used to have to also go check that it hadn't been canceled. Sure. That the certificate hadn't been revoked. Yeah. The problem is that made websites load slower. And Google's like, well, we can't have that. So they got rid of the check. Other browser vendors eventually follow suit. Uh, the net effect is that it's now virtually impossible to revoke a certificate. Although uh, vendors develop their own proprietary revocation mechanisms, they can use them only for a small number of high-profile certificates. So one of the main reasons for this is obviously downloading a multi-megabyte certificate revocation list onto your phone constantly was an issue. Yeah. But it also means that a, a medium-level operator like Jupiter Broadcasting is sort of stuck in the middle. Yeah. Uh, well, in particular, it just meant that the browsers weren't going to check if your certificate was revoked. So, if, yeah, if, you got, if your key got compromised and you switched to a new certificate, somebody could still man in the middle people with your old certificate. Because uh, they wouldn't stop trusting it like they're supposed to. And we'll get into that a little bit more as well. Then we have uh, March HTTP uh, version 2, call for proposals. After success with Speedy, there's a critical mass of developers interested in working on the next version of HTTP protocol. A period of intense debate uh, and discussion begins. Uh, then April, we have SSL Pulse, uh, which is another uh, automated monthly scans and reporting of about 150,000 most visited websites. Yeah. To check- so, yeah, I kind of that doesn't seem like it was a big of a deal back, but yeah, right. okay, all right. Uh, then we have the flame uh, malware. Oh, no. that was a big deal. Yes, the Iranian computer emergency response team discloses the existence of flame, yeah, and malware used in targeted cyber attacks against Iran. Flame is possibly the first cyber weapon that could be operated as early as 2007. In a stunning turn of events, it transpired that flame exploited an MD5 collision on its own to obtain a fraudulent CA certificate. Yeah, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Then in July of 2012, we have the baseline requirements. After the success with the EV certificates, the CA Browser Forum publishes baseline requirements to standardize the issuance of all SSL certificates. Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, what's 
eventually going to allow us to deprecate a bunch of old crap and, and force CAs to not give out bad certificates. Mm-hmm. So then we have August. Uh, Microsoft blocks all RSA keys below 1024 bits. As CPU power continues to increase, low-strength keys are coming under attack. Google updates Windows to start blocking all these weak keys. Yeah, that's June 11, 2012. Yeah, uh, and uh, eventually we'll see the minimum move up to 2048. Uh, then in August, Dane TLSA, or DNS-based authentication of named entities, yeah. uh, was published as RFC 6698. Uh, offers the option for a DNSSEC infrastructure to store and sign keys and certificates that will be used for TLS. Uh, maybe that'll take off someday. <laughs> <laughs> then September, we have the crime attack. Uh, Duong and Rizzo strike again, uh, the people that came up with the beast attack, with a working exploit against newer versions of TLS. Uh, just when some browsers begin to support it, the offending functionality is quickly rolled back. Okay. Then we have uh, HTTP strict transport security actually becomes a standard. Oh, yeah, yeah. Four years after they invented it and Google was already using it, uh, the you know the original idea was called Force HTTPS. Right. HTTP strict transport security was released as a standard, RFC 6797, uh, with HSTS websites can indicate that they require encryption, even if plain text access is requested for whatever reason. Another important feature of HSTS is that it doesn't allow clicking through certificate warning errors. It's finally possible to deploy websites encryption in a way uh, they were supposed to be from the beginning. Then we get the uh, content security policy to prevent cross-site scripting and so on. Uh, And then uh, the International Computer Science Institute launches a certificate notary to monitor and report on encrypted traffic on large networks. And then uh, we get uh, February of 2013, Lucky 13. Uh, researchers published Lucky Tech 13, their attack on CBC mode in TLS. <laughs> uh, in TLS, block encryption is designed to authenticate plain text rather than ciphertext, which creates an opportunity for an attacker to execute a padding Oracle attack. And that's why it's important that we get up to the newer version of TLS that supports the AED ciphers where you don't need that bit. Uh, then in March, we see RC4 biases. Uh, new attacks against RC4 are discovered. Previously, it was thought that RC4's weaknesses didn't affect TLS very much, but it was uh, shown to be wrong. This research makes the death of RC4, although it takes a couple of years before it actually dies. Mm. Then we have an important event. May of uh, 2013 is Edward Snowden. Wow. Releasing thousands of classified NSA documents to selected journalists, changing the public's perspective on the internet forever. We and finally realized encryption. the extent of passive monitoring of plain text communications. I, I would think that event is one of the biggest sort of changes in terms of off-the-record encryption or end-to-end encryption or, you know, insert buzzword that all of the messaging applications, even those from Google and Apple, now feature. Yep. I don't know if they're all that reliable, but they everybody is now talking to a certain set of talking points when yep. it comes to cloud uh, So computing. then in March, uh, Google launched its Certificate Transparency Project, oh. which is a long-term effort to have a public record of all public certificates. So this is the idea here. When a certificate authority issues a certificate, they will have to submit it to a bunch of these certificate transparency sites. And it's a uh, hashed log thing, so you can never basically delete something from the middle. So it provides you know, a third-party way to verify that you have a list of every certificate that authority ever issued. And if you see a certificate that's not on the list, you know it's fake. Or it will treat it as fake so that they can't stealthily issue a certificate to a government that is valid but isn't on the public list. 
Uh, then Tal Berry uh, presents Time, a way to abuse information leakage stemming from HTTP compression and then encryption. Uh, I think uh, we talked about that one. And then uh, the breach attack exploits HTTP compression that's used before encryption. This attack is released as a proof of concept tool that uh, steals the cross-site request forgery tokens from real sites in less than a minute. Although not easy to exploit, compression before encryption remains a real problem for all web applications. Then in August of 2013 here, uh, work begins on TLS 1.3. Although TLS 1.2 seems good enough for now, it's clear that it can't support the next few decades of internet evolution. Thus, work on the next generation of uh, encryption protocol begins. Realizing this, Chrome decides that Chrome version 29 will finally support TLS 1.2. <laughs> finally. Yeah. Uh, and then in September, we see the bull run in Edge Hill. Uh, the world learns of Bull Run NSA's operation and Edge Hill, the mm. GCHQ's operation, yep. to subvert encryption standards worldwide. Right. And that's when, in September, we see the dual elliptic curve DRBG, a pseudo-random number generator standardized and promoted by NIST, is uh, implicated as a potential backdoor. The TLS extension called Extended Random, submitted to uh, standardization by the NSA, exposes a large number of random numbers on the wire. So that's a problem. Uh, then in October, we have uh, Cha-Cha 20 Poly 1305. Uh, this is a, a, you know, after a long time, an, another AED, AEAD encryption okay. is included in the ecosystem when Google starts using Cha-Cha 20. Uh, okay. uh, big thing here is this is coming. It's a Dan Kaminsky's cipher that wasn't developed uh, as part of the NIST or the government or standard or anything. This basically. It's another encryption protocol that we are pretty sure the NSA didn't have any hand in. Ah, uh, okay. That makes it legit. All right. Yeah. Continue on, uh, sir. Yeah. Uh, and then in October, finally, Safari starts supporting TLS 1.2. Yeah. Uh, followed in November by Internet Explorer 11 adding yep. support. Yep. Uh, yep. And then we see here, uh, Chrome's public key pinning detects a number of certificates issued during the transparency interception, uh, or sorry, during transparent interception of encrypted traffic within ANSSI, which is a French network and information security agency. Shortly thereafter, ANSSI's certificate authority was limited to issuing certificates only for French territories. So a certificate authority was issuing invalid certificates in order to do uh, decryption of traffic inside their network, and uh, their CA authority was restricted so they can only issue certificates in France because uh, it was basically a government-backed certificate authority from back when we allowed those. And finally, we're in 2014. All right. In January of 2014, RSA 2048 bit becomes the minimum for all regular certificates. Sure. Um, thanks to the CA browser forum, although weak, intermediate, and root keys are still allowed to remain in use. Yeah. Partly because it takes a lot longer to change those. As we talked about. And then in February of 2014, finally, Firefox hey adds support for TLS 1.2 and version 27. So this is 2014, and, and we're finally getting in Firefox 27, we're finally getting, is it 1.2 support? Uh, TLS 1.2. Yeah. yeah, by default. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, I forget when we said TLS 1.2 came out, but it was a long time ago. Yes, that's, that's why I make a mention of it. Yep. <laughs> uh, and then we have April of 2014. Do you know what was in April of 2014? Uh, I do. I do. I remember because it was, I remember it was when you and I were getting super sensitive to the overbranding of bugs. And it was one of the first times you and I were like, 
do we have to have a logo and a name for every single bug? This is getting ridiculous. And uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I believe that was Heartbleed. You're just looking at the doc, cheater. Anyway, <laughs> yes. Uh, a critical vulnerability in OpenSSL, a very widely used TLS library, is discovered. If exploited, Heartbleed enables attackers to retrieve uh, process memory from vulnerable servers, often resulting in private key compromise. Yeah. Because of tremendous hype associated with the attack, most public servers fix the vulnerability practically overnight. A long tail of vulnerable devices remains, though Heartbleed's biggest contribution is showing the world how severely underfunded the OpenSSL project is mm. uh, for its 20 years of existence. Is that when we saw uh, the uh, the infrastructure initiative from the Linux Foundation? Yep. Okay. Yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. In the following months, large organizations start to contribute uh, to the project and uh, the big cleanup begins. Yeah, okay. I do recall that. Although in that. June, Google starts its boring SSL project. Yes. The fork of OpenSSL with a lot of the extra features removed. So it's just the basics. Yep. Uh, and then we see more fraudulent certificates from India's National Information Center and a bunch of other ones. Uh, and uh, Chrome limits the certificate to only work on Indian domain names. July, we see LibreSSL, uh, where the OpenBSD's project fork of, of uh, OpenSSL, kind of same idea as, as boring SSL. Uh, and then here we have the release of uh, the book that this timeline is based on. Bulletproof SSL and TLS. After five years of research and two years of writing, Ivan Ristik uh, publishes his book, Bulletproof SSL and TLS. For the first time, the complexities of SSL and TLS and Internet PKI ecosystems are described in a single book. Then we see the Bleckenbacher side channel attack. Uh, Applying the Bleckenbacher attack from 1998 to modern uh, TLS stacks. That was an interesting one because it's like, yeah, we've known about this attack since 1998, but we just found out that it also works against newer stuff. <laughs> yep. <laughs> then in September of uh, this is 2014, Cloudflare starts giving away SSL certificates. Oh, man. Users. This rubbed me the wrong way. Yes. Uh, partly because it was really funny the way they did it is they did uh, multiple domains on a single certificate. And so I remember there was like a, I think it was Jeb Bush's website was on the same certificate yes! as the website. Yes. Right. <laughs> wow. That's a whole election ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All kinds of stuff like that. Uh, then we have the Berserk vulnerability, which is RSA signature forgery due to incorrect parsing of ASN1 in Mozilla's NSS, which is mm-hmm. uh, the Netscape security suite. Uh, and it's a modern example of the Blackenbacher attack we just talked about. Then we have Poodle. It is discovered that SSLv3 doesn't actually have a defense against uh, padding Oracle attacks. Fortunately, attacks are generally not that easy to carry out, and most of the world can use better protocols. Most sites realize that they can turn off the older protocol now without anyone noticing. Yeah. In response to Poodle, browsers stop falling back to SSLv3 if the TSL, uh, TLS connection fails. So yeah, we got you know SSLv3, the protocol from 1995. We finally stopped using it in October <laughs> 2014. <laughs> <laughs> then in December, we get the Poodle attack. Shortly thereafter, it is discovered that even though TLS 1.0 does have built-in defenses against padding Oracle attacks, some implementations don't implement those correctly. This new problem is called Poodle TLS. Uh, this discovery shines light on the fact yep. that most protocol implementations aren't tested in adversarial conditions. Yep. Moreover, we knew that TLS 1.0 was bad in like 2005 or so, <laughs> 10 years before this, and we just hadn't stopped using it. Yeah, you know, at this point, all browsers support newer stuff. Why aren't we using it? 
Then we finally get to 2015, where we have Logjam, the attack against Diffie-Hellman, for anything with less than 512-bit DH parameters. We get Superfish from Lenovo. Uh, Finally, IETF publishes RFC 7465 to prohibit RC4 in all cipher suites. Then the CN, Nick China's information, uh, Internet Network Information Center, issued a short-lived subordinate CA for testing purposes to a company called Midi's Communication Systems, and uh, it was promptly loaded into a device for transparent network intercept, creating at least one misused certificate for Google. So Nothing? Google and Mozilla revoke trust in the Chinese. What's the uh, big deal? No problem. Nothing. Then, uh, seven years after the original Live.com certificate incident, it has transpired that Microsoft forgot to lock down its administrative mailboxes for Live.fi, the Finnish version. Uh, and somebody manages to get a certificate using that. <laughs> you know, we standardized on what the email addresses could be, but Microsoft still didn't bother to lock them all down. Yeah. In version 37, Firefox announces one CRL, Mozilla's proprietary method for revoking certificates. So they download this one short list of certificates they actually care to revoke instead of going to each certificate authority and getting the full uh, revocation list. Uh, it's now the only way Mozilla can blacklist certificates via Firefox software updates. Uh, then we have, uh, in March, Microsoft introduces certificate reputation. Windows 10 is extended to uh, continuously sample certificates users encounter in everyday browsing. The recorded certificates are sent back to Microsoft from where they can be forwarded to site owners via Bing's webmaster program. This is basically to tell website owners what certificates are being used to access their website. Uh, So if it's any other than your main one, it's probably a problem. But it mostly seems a way for Microsoft to track what websites you're going to, even though they're encrypted. Then we have the SMAC attack, or state machine attack. Right. It targets weaknesses in implementation of TLS state machine in various libraries. Uh, This is basically problems in each of the implementations rather than the protocol itself. Then in March, we have Freak. Uh, the researchers behind the Freak attack disclosed that any server using export cryptography can be exploited via a flaw in many clients' TLS implementations, forcing them to downgrade to the crypto version or the export crypto version. Initially, it was thought that the problem existed only with OpenSSL, but uh, S Channel and Secure Transport were later found to be vulnerable as well. Uh, I think S Channel is the Apple one, and Secure Transport is the Microsoft one, or maybe the other way around. Anyway, turns out. Every OS was vulnerable. Uh, and then finally, in Firefox version 37, uh, released March 1st or March 31st of 2015, uh, Firefox disables TLS fallback. Uh, so that it will always, it will never fall back to SSL v3. Then we get uh, in April, HTTP public key pinning, which basically allows you to in DNS indicate that if you see a certificate other than this one for the website, you know that it's bad. Finally. Uh, and then we uh, invented a new protocol in April, TLS Fallback SCSV. Hey, everybody. So defense against the protocol downgrade attacks. Uh, the reactions are mixed, but Chrome and Firefox decide to support it, but Microsoft doesn't like the idea. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and then man. Chrome, Google starts to require certificate transparency, where mm. the, uh, every certificate issued has to go to their log. Uh, in order to recognize EV SSL certificates, so if you want to sell the if a register if a certificate authority wants to sell the expensive super green certificates, they have to give a list of every certificate they issue to Google in real time. And if it's not on their certificate transparency list, Google will throw up an error for the certificate. Uh, and then finally, in May of 2015, we have HTTP 2 is, is standardized as RFC 7540. Right. Google pledges to switch to HTTP 2 over time and fully retire Speedy. 
Unlike Speedy, HTTP2 does not require encryption, but all browser vendors decide to implement the new protocol with encryption anyway. Uh, then finally in June, we have the deprecation of SSLv3 mm. because of Poodle and so on. Uh, and then Komodo launches CRT.sh, a searchable database of public certificates according to uh, its certificate transparency logs. Uh, then Safari 9 finally disallows uh, mixed active content. Safari is the last browser to allow uh, disallow active content, so browsers continue to allow uh, images and so on, passive content to be loaded, but anything active has to be over SSL. So we're still in 2015 at this stage. We're getting to the end of it. Yeah, but so... Uh, then in October, we have TS, TLS feature extension. After years of discussion, the new X509 extension is published as RFC 7633 yeah. and allows you to uh, couple certificates with certain TLS features. The first user of this extension is must staple, uh, a desperately needed feature that requires a valid OCSP or online certificate status protocol response before a certificate is trusted. This is a, instead of having a replication list, we have a way to actually call a service and say, is the certificate valid? Yeah. Instead uh, of having to download a giant list of revoked certificates and compare. Ha, uh, has, has Canadian Thanksgiving already happened? It's already happened, hasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was like two weeks ago. Yeah. See, for American Thanksgiving, what we got was Let's Encrypt. That, I remember that being a big thing about November for 2015 was Let's Encrypt became a thing. Yep. Uh, Let's Encrypt launches and provides free certificates with automatic issuance. It is widely expected that this new nonprofit CA will further drive down the price of domain validated certificates and encou- uh, encourage similar programs from other more su- uh, established certificate authorities. However, it's their focus on automatic issuance that excites and allows all infrastructure to be protected. Interestingly, I haven't seen a drop in the price of DVD certificates, although $9 is already pretty low for a year. Yeah, uh, I've had a couple of cases where I've actually went and paid the $9 instead of using Let's Encrypt because it's too difficult to renew the Let's Encrypt on a regular basis because of the type of setup we're using. Uh, in particular, all the Let's Encrypt clients want to check for that status file immediately. Yeah. But it takes 15 minutes for it to appear on the CDN because I don't know which of 100 nodes Let's Encrypt is going to connect to to check for that file. Hmm. It gets kind of complicated. Yeah. Although I just thought now of a way to work around that. But anyway. Uh, finally, in January of 2016, all major browsers stopped supporting RC4. Uh, in January of 2016, we also disallow uh, SHA-1 certificates. So certificate authorities are no longer allowed to issue public SHA-1 certificates. The keyword here is public. Some CAs continue to issue SHA-1 certificates from routes uh, that are not trusted by modern browsers, but continue to be trusted by some older devices. So that, you know, for old devices, they still have support. Although those devices should die. Then uh, the Crypto Forum Research Group, or CFRG, uh, releases RFC 7748 to standardize two new elliptic curve algorithms, Curve uh, 25519 and Curve 448. Hey-oh. Um, these curves are not only modern and forward-looking, but will help them... Uh, 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 but will help those not comfortable with relying on the controversial NIST curves. So these are curves that were came up in a way that everybody can see how it was done and know there's yeah. no magic going on, and that they didn't have any fingers from the U.S. government in it. Okay. And so that brings us to what, like uh, early January 2015? Still. Okay. We're still in January of 2016. Oh, 2016. Year. Okay. Yes, okay. we're in this year now. Okay. Uh, researchers uh, demonstrate sloth, security losses from obsolete and truncated transcript hashes. I remember. Which uh, exploits the fact that many clients and servers continue to support 
RSA with MD5 signatures, even though we don't even allow SHA-1 signatures anymore. Yeah. Uh, then in February, we have TLS version 1.3, ready or not. Uh, so while they've been working on the standard for a long time, it's still not ratified. So they start a workshop where they'll actually uh, carefully analyze the new design and try to find any problems before they standardize it. So they're really trying to push to get TLS 1.3 done because we need something newer and that we can force everybody to upgrade to. Uh, Firefox in version 45 starts supporting uh, must-staple parameter and the for uh, short-lived certificates. So we can have certificates that last only days, kind of like Let's Encrypt, but even faster. Uh, then there's the drown attack in March, which we talked about a lot. Uh, interesting aspect is this attack that even servers that don't have SSLv2 can be exploited if they reuse the same RSA key uh, as some other server that does support SSLv2. That was the interesting one with drown is, you know, even if you had it all locked down on most of your servers, but if you had like one email server in a corner that was still allowing SSLv2, it would allow you to get back the secret key and exploit even the locked down servers. In April, Chrome dropped uh, all TLS fallback in version 50 of Chrome, uh, and they also stopped using RC4 and SSLv3 uh, across the entirety of Google and enabled HSTS. Then in August, we saw the Suite 32, which shows the danger of all 64-bit block ciphers, uh, exploited by the birthday paradox. Uh, this includes ciphers like uh, 3DES and Blowfish, which was the default in Opium VPN, and that was the problem. And then finally, we get into the future. So this timeline even covers the future. All right. Uh, like in January that. of 2017, coming up soon, all modern browsers must stop accepting all SHA-1 certificates. Uh, so while we've outlawed the issuing of new ones at the beginning of 2016, at the uh, beginning of 2017, we will not accept any ever. So even ones that were already issued will die uh, <laughs> early death. Okay. <laughs> and then scheduled for July of 2018, the Payment Card Industry Council will deprecate TLS 1.0. Hmm. Starting from July 2018, all PCI-compliant merchants must not support TLS 1.0, forcing people to use TLS 1.1 or newer. Uh, ideally, you would think at this point they should require 1.2, but anyway. Yeah. Originally, the date was intended to be July of 2016, but that was not realistic because too many users rely on obsolete technology that doesn't support modern protocols. Hmm. And that's the end of the timeline. Uh, I skipped over a bunch of stuff, so if you want to read more, you should definitely uh, go check that out. And uh, if you want to learn even more, uh, maybe check out the book. And, like, all of the stuff in the show notes, by the way. Like, if anything, if, if anything was just kind of, like, just over your head a little bit, Alan has it all yeah. out in the show notes. That's and, and on the website, they also have links to a bunch of the stuff. So if you want to read more about each specific incident, there's lots of stuff in there. Very good. In fact, it looks like they end it all with, like, a, a bulletproof SSL and TLS PDF kind of thing. I think that's the cover of the book that they're trying to say. Uh, oh, that's the book? Uh, okay. I hadn't clicked it because I thought I'd just load a PDF. <laughs> that's an interesting timeline because so much of it sort of resonates with the major stories we've talked about here on the yeah, show. Yeah, it was interesting to kind of summarize. Like you just tell where TechSnap starts. All yeah. of a sudden I know all of these stories. Yeah. And and remember the details and the impact they made. And it's now it's funny because – But the hit- worst part is just realizing I didn't realize like SSL V3 was that old. Well, or that we knew SSL v2 was bad in 1995, and yet we're getting screwed by it in 2015. Not only that, Alan, but when we're talking, when we were talking about this stuff, 
we were talking about stuff that literally is part now of cybersecurity history. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's funny because I think we've had, well, yeah, but, it's funny back, but I think we've had some of the best coverage. Yeah, but yeah. if you started twenty eleven, go forward. You could include a tech snap link for almost every one of the yeah. stuff. And I honestly could, I could honestly, very honestly, proudly say that I think our coverage of all of those stories was some of the best. So that's yeah. pretty cool too. Uh, so let's take a moment before we go any further and thank DigitalOcean. Speaking of some of the best, DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a totally kick-ass server on their infrastructure. You can get started for less than $5 a month and shorter than 55 seconds. They have a great interface. If you're a brand-new server person or you've been working with servers for years, you'll have two experiences. Either, wow, damn, shoot, wow, whoo, that DigitalOcean UI is easy to use, or your other, your other experience, the one that I had was, what the hell, what the hell? What took so long? What took so damn long for someone to get this right? That's also, that's the flip side. Or, or it could be, this UI is too flashy for me. I'm going to use the API and do it all from the command line. <laughs> yeah, man, because they have a great, great API and tons of great open source code you can take advantage of. Just use our promo code, SNAPOcean. It's one word. It's lowercase. You apply it to your account, and you get a $10 credit. SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase. Go spin up a rig running Linux or FreeBSD at DigitalOcean.com, and they have one-click application stacks to deploy the entire thing you want, or start with a system built just at the basic level and set it all up and learn and take advantage of their super great documentation. If you go to their community section, you'll see some really good docs. But, you know, we're doing an ad right now here on the uh, TechSnap program, so I feel like I should talk about money. I feel like I should, I should, I should come to you and say, take a look at this. T- use our promo code SNAPOcean. And look at their hourly pricing. Now, if you have something you want to try, if you have something you want to experiment with, something you want to roll into production hourly, or if you're going with monthly, you're going to be pretty well, impressed. The interesting thing is basically you always pay hourly. Yeah. And if you leave yeah. it on 24-7, you actually get a slight discount. Like That's if you do true. the math on the hourly, it's, it would, you know, depending on how many uh, days are in the month or whatever, they basically just make the monthly one. So if you leave it on all the time, you get a nice round n- number yeah. instead of paying, you know, $10.31.4. <laughs> yeah. yeah they they kind of make it just easier. If you want yeah. to just do the monthly thing and you want to run it, to, just leave it 24-7, they make it just a little bit easier for you. And if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, two months for free. At least if you're trying out the five dollar rig, or try out the try out the three cents an hour rig, which gives you two gigabytes of RAM, a two core processor, forty gigabytes of SSD ZFS storage, and yeah, yeah, three terabytes, yeah, ZFS on that. And honestly, ZFS start with ZFS on the three cents an hour, but then take advantage of the block storage. Yep, that's really where it's cool. And uh, on top of all of that, they have a uh, they have a they have a guide that they've just posted two hours ago as we record this episode of TechSnap. <laughs> if you're trying to make Docker work for you, and I have been there, <laughs> I have been there. Check out this post they have two hours ago: How to debug and fix common Docker issues. I know, I know, it can be a pain. And they have great documentation on. Also, if you want to get down to the free BSD path of things like jails and just get started cooking, check it out. They have great documentation on that as well. And I think they even have like the latest version of FreeBSD stable as of right now. Isn't that true? Yep. They have the FreeBSD uh, 11.0 release the day it came out. 
Yeah, damn, that's great. That is UFS or ZFS. You know, if if I was picking if I was picking uh, FreeBSD for a lot of my droplets, I would feel I would feel pretty good about their commitment to that. So that's very yep. very very nice. Speaking of FreeBSD, and thank you to DigitalOcean, and thank you to everybody for using our promo code SnapOcean. But speaking of FreeBSD, mm-hmm. why not mention the BSD program one sixty four virtualized cow? What the hell, cow pie. Yes. I'm going to guess that's copy on write and something yep. to do with a Raspberry Pi, but that's just yes. my guess. Uh, so it, it's uh, virtually uh, V kernels in Dragonfly BSD got copy on write support. Uh-huh. Uh, BSD got support for Raspberry Pi three, and I forget what the other story was. So you, uh, you those be- three main headlines, and and Chris really wanted to have virtualized cow pies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, of course that sounds like Chris. Um, uh, FreeBSD eleven is where the uh, Pi three support and Pi two support comes in, right? Uh, the Pi 3 support is developmental. It only went into FreeBSD head uh, huh? like this week. It's brand ah, new. Oh, damn. That's some uh, fresh it, It's not finished yet, but it's it's enough that if you're willing to do a bit of extra work, you can get it running on your Pi now or your Pi 3 now. God, that's, Pi 1 and 2 are already, have been supported for a long time. That's so awesome. That's so yep. great. You guys are really uh, you Also, guys are our interview it. is quite interesting in this episode because it's just uh, a random person happens to walk into uh, the room where Chris is doing the podcast and we interview them i thought chris did the podcast from his house uh he does it from work now no kidding because he he goes to his office every day now no, right? but last work, week he was at home time. right last week no, he was no it was a couple that's of months now oh, that oh big couch. with the couch yeah. yeah i just thought he moved yeah. upstairs i thought he moved. no 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 <laughs> that's his office now. oh okay okay and somebody so, walks no. in and has the interview <laughs> Yeah. Well, that doesn't ask to, but they walk in and it's like, all right, sit down, we're interviewed. That's great. So 164 of the BSD Now program, virtualized cow and pie with a question mark. <laughs> Check it out at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the tech step feedback. sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Now, lots of you have been sending in emails because you know we have a double coming up next week. And if you didn't hear your question answered on this week's episode, there is a chance we are saving it for next week's episode. But also, personally, deep down from my groins, I got to ask you, Please send us your questions. Go over to the contact page at Juice Text Up from the drop down because we'll be recording two of these huge programs and we like to have lots of great questions. And our first one this week, speaking of a great question, came in from Jeremy. And it's not just a question, it's also follow up. He says, Dear Chris and Alan, I just finished listening to the phone update segment of TechSnap 288. That's last week. And I had some thoughts to share. After getting seriously burned, either through delayed or non-existent security updates on a carrier-branded phone, this was Verizon in this case, I personally will never buy another phone through a carrier again. I had six Verizon-branded Galaxy S3, Galaxy S4 phones, and my wife had a Sony Xperia Z3V. Never again! Six months or longer delays on updates are completely unacceptable. I will not buy another Samsung device until they have proven a track record of timely security and OS updates. In the meantime, I'm hanging on to my Nexus 5X until it goes out of support. After that, who knows? I may have to bite and go with iOS. Oh! Wow. 
Also, in regard to phones, I don't think that three years is long enough for security updates. And I want to pause right here. We got this email a lot this week, and I, I didn't have a great way to represent it in our emails because I didn't want to sit here and read seven emails to you guys from people that said three years isn't enough. But I thought this was an email that kind of summed it up pretty good. So he says, uh, I'll, honestly, I don't feel like three years is enough time for security updates. I work with plenty of non-geeks, and they buy a smartphone and use it until it physically breaks. One gentleman I work with has an iPhone 4S, and I just replaced the screen on another's Galaxy S3. They don't know or care that they're not getting the security updates. They just think, why bother upgrading? This makes calls, it sends texts, and I can surf the web just fine. In regard to the guy with the overheating laptop, the heatsink could be in need of a very special cleaning, especially if he has pets. A great yes. point. Uh, lots of people with cat and dog hair clogging yep. up their laptop vents. Yep, and we got a few people that emailed in and said that about that. Also, if the fan isn't running at max speed when it's hot, you could have a driver issue or a broken fan. Thanks for all yep, the great... Or just bad temperature sensor for the fan. Yeah. Uh, and But no matter what, the CPU is supposed to scale itself down. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the original person might have written and said that they found it is doing that, but it's not enough or something. Yeah, and so Jeremy says, hey, go in there and look at blowing out the heatsink or something like that. And you know what? Um, a lot of people wrote in on, on, the, on the three years is not enough and, and check your heatsink on your yeah. laptop. So with three years not being enough, you know, at some point, you know, it has to, the, the vendor has to draw a line. Yeah, and, uh, you know, some people definitely say in, on the box of the phone. Maybe we, oh, we get long-term support phones. Some folks emailed and said Microsoft does five years. And yeah, I think micro- Apple well, does what percent four. of market share does Microsoft have for phones now? Like 1.1%? I know. I think Apple does four years. You know, so Microsoft claims that, but I'm pretty sure my old Microsoft phone has been discontinued. Of, actually, I'm pretty sure my older Microsoft phones never got a security update ever, ever, ever. Like it ran version 6.1.0 of Windows Embedded. See, that shit's embarrassing. Period. So you know, there was no idea of these over-the-air updates. It's like my phone didn't really have internet. It, it had some $10 thing that pretended it was kind of access to the internet. It was See, enough for me to SSH out of the phone. If, if you but there was a, no web browser on the phone. How am I gonna, not going to get over-the-air updates? Am yeah. I going to plug it into a computer I might not have to update it? They just didn't even have the idea of updates. So I don't know that they can claim that they were great on five-year support for their phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. I suppose if like we were to create a hypothetical situation and somebody held a hypothetical gun to my head and they said, Chris, tell me the one phone I can buy that I can have a good shot of getting updates for the next four or five years, I would have to I say think five, an iPhone. Someone. Well, even an iPhone doesn't go five years. No, I don't know. Four years, I think, on an iPhone? Five years is that, well, and it's, it's like we know kind of what they've done in the past, but we don't necessarily know what they're going to do in the future. Either. I, but it's funny how many people wrote in and said five years. That didn't – that's not like the – we've got a couple of people that said that. So five – and you know what? When – before I had read all the emails and I was, just res, I was just responding to each one that came in, I was like, yeah, you know what? When I think about my non-techie friends and family, I, I think they mostly use a phone for about five years unless they break it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can see that. You know, we do live in the echo chamber of, you know – uh, too many people you see in the chat room don't go two years without getting a new phone. Or my, I don't go probably nine months. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're slightly crazy. Uh, I have this podcasting thing I do. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really have much to do with phones. You're, you're hitting yourself there. <laughs> now you used a ding on my show. Hello. 
Hello, first of all, physical dinger. Second of all, Ting sponsors like a bajillion of my shows. It being being current on mobile is extremely relevant to my job. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. If you, unless you have a reason to upgrade, it, you're going to probably use your phone for as long as you possibly can because it works. Right? Well, you know, that's the main reason I replaced my old Android is because it stopped working properly because yes. it got updated beyond what the hardware can and, support. So, and you have a Nexus 6 now. And why would yeah. you replace it until it doesn't do the thing you need it to do? Well, at some point, because if it, it'll stop getting security updates. Yeah. It's the same reason why we tell people they have to upgrade from CentOS 5. Yeah, well, it's still does the thing I needed to and do. People who, like, know, well, people who know will do it. But otherwise, people will just continue. Okay, I had a family member who who fought the digital transition and wanted an analog flip phone for as long as possible because it just works better for her. And so that's – she didn't want one of those digital phones. She wanted an analog phone that would if, – if, if you were in a bad reception area, instead of just losing the call, it would sort of cut out and fade out for a little bit and then come back. And she felt like that was better than a call or no call. And she wasn't going to upgrade until she had to. And that's just – I mean when you – but that I don't feel like if you're outside the tech bubble is all of that – that's not all that revolutionary. That seems – that's, yes, I just think, you know, at some point we have to draw a line as well, right? We can't just, you yeah, know, it's the same reason why we tell people you have to get off Windows XP. It's like, sure, it works for what you need to do, but you're ruining the rest of the internet. I think the problem is cars. People, people ha- are, are, are looking at cars and they just treat everything else like cars, like televisions and Car- cars. Yes, uh, although most people have upgraded their television more recently than their phone. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, you know, and it's different, you know, um, in the UK and so on, people, you'd never get rid of a car. You just sell the old one and like you always thinking as part of when you're buying your car is how much you're going to get for it when you sell it. Right. People don't really think about that in North America, right? Yeah. When you're, you don't stop using your car until it's dead or whatever. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. How much, yeah, when you buy it, when you buy it, that's a good point. That's a cultural, yeah. And, and I feel like that's not where we're at well, with Well, part technology. of that is also... A difference in capital gains laws and taxes and and things like that. Jeez. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, um, all right. Well, let's let's talk yeah. about what we do know, and that's Luca's email. So uh, Luca writes in and says, "I have a question about ZFS." Uh, what? What's the matter? You what? skipped an email, baby. What's the matter? What's where's, wrong? Where's Nico's email? Nico? Nico? Yeah. Second email. Yeah, that one. Oh, oh, you want to do the you want to do the firmware on my uh, BSD box one? Well, that's that's the second email. All right, I I follow you. Do me in order, you. damn it. Nico writes in. I saw. It's, I'm not going to claim your uh, OCD. Nico writes in how to update firmware using Linux or or BSD. I'm going to assume FreeBSD, but just BSD in general. Hi, he says. I got a really worried over. I got really worried over the Internet of Things device entire security category after listening to episode 288 of TechSnap. I started to look into things, and I'm left to wonder about a couple of little issues that may maybe you could answer. How can I, using only Linux or BSD, update my Internet of Things device? The manufacturer has provided some kind of update, but it's usually a Windows executable or something like that. Also, it seems that the devices that can be updated automatically usually do not get the updates because carriers or etc. stand in the way. And to make things worse, the devices have usually been locked, so there seems to be no way for me to update them myself. So I was wondering... What is the TechSnap solution for the way around this? 
So there's a couple things. Um, most devices that are going to do a firmware update probably aren't going to require a Windows executable, although they sometimes will do that to make it easier. Most of them end up, you know, TFTP booting or something yeah, yeah. to update it. Or rather, most modern devices, you know, you can update the firmware from in the web interface by basically overriding the, the flash storage that's built into it. Uh, like, at least for routers yeah. and stuff that yeah. I've dealt with, most embedded devices, it's just, you. they have a NOR flash, which is kind of flash that... While you can erase it and reprogram it, you basically have to erase the whole thing and reprogram the whole thing at once. So it's not like a USB stick where you can just add copies and files to it. You basically burn it. You erase it and burn it with new information. And most of them will be able to do something like that. Um, and I've done that on routers and stuff and I not require Windows. For um, some reason, I, 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 um, I can't really see a scenario where this is a huge issue, except for when it comes to like laptop and PC hardware. And then there, well, I would... like for firmware, like in the devices, it depends. You know, like uh, on my servers, I have uh, there's a FreeBSD utility that can do LSI RAID cards, but there's not one to do Adaptech. You usually mm-hmm. end up making a USB stick and booting a little DOS thing to for most like for yep. most firmware. That's right? what I was just gonna say. Uh, yeah. yeah, or nah, free uh, DOS or free DOS. But, but for for some things, I, I like for some of these, like say. Uh, IP security cameras, if there's not a way to update the firmware from the web interface, some of them, I suppose, might actually require a Windows VM or, or like a Windows machine yeah. and the firmware update. Oh, man, it's a pain in the butt. Uh, I just bought, I just got... Uh, yeah, those dust. are just terrible devices. I don't there's, know what to do. there, There's a device I have had now for multiple months that I haven't updated because it's a navigation device, and it's an RV-specific navigation device. And it can only be updated via Windows software. And there's not, I don't, I don't, maybe eventually I'll get around to trying out like a virtual machine and try updating it. But yeah, that does happen from time to time. Is the, the problem is, is that the, when the manufacturer releases the device, they envision a product in which all of the users will be updating it from the Windows operating system. And so I guess long term, my advice would be don't buy those types of things. Yeah. Um, you know, look for one. It's not like they advertise that whether you can update the firmware or not, but it's the type of thing you can maybe check in online reviews and try to get something maybe, that has a reasonable web interface to update. Maybe after a couple more episodes of TechSnap, manufacturers will get the idea and they'll start making it easier. Uh, okay, so now we get on to our first ZFS question of the day. Gird yourselves. Luca writes in, I have a question about ZFS on my computer, which I've also used as a server for different things. And I'm planning to use sort of a kind of like a backup NAS for photos. I currently have three, I'm sorry, two three terabyte drives, and I want to create a ZFS RAID 1 out of it. Right now, I'm using Extended 4 without any RAID. Now, I don't know if I should switch to free NAS or if I should stay with Arch Linux because I have the following requirements. Now, this is a little muddy. A requirement of the Docker command line, a requirement of something to do and manage virtual machines. Uh, He currently uses libvirt with QMU with a Windows machine that has GPU pass-through, which (laughs) he's already got set up, which is a major pain in the ass. Also, um, a Python version 3 installation for his own uh, DYN DNS client. Uh, which works great, by the way, with the DigitalOcean API. So, uh, what with that? Should I stay? Should I stay with all of all of this stuff with all these requirements? Should he stay with Arch Linux, or maybe would Free well, so NAS give these tools? Like he's trying to use his NAS as his PC as well. He is. <laughs> which so yeah, Free NAS is definitely an appliance and is not meant for that. 
Um, with FreeNAS 10, they have support for Docker by basically it fires up a Linux VM and runs the Docker in that and then has a system so that you run the Docker command lines and they actually execute in the VM. Because uh, there's there's like there's a port of Docker to FreeBSD, but you know obviously your your Linux Docker image isn't going to run very well on FreeBSD. Uh, our emulation stuff can run CentOS six ones quite well, but not anything newer, like anything newer than kernel two point six. All your kernel three and four ones are basically better off in a VM. Um, so yeah, FreeNAS ten can do the Docker thing kind of, uh, but GPU pass through doesn't quite work yet. And then Python three is doable, but yeah. So in that case, you probably want to stay with Arch. But really what you should do is have a free NAS that's freestanding and then do your video card stuff on your Arch box. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you could you could use Arch Linux, although I can't help you run ZFS on Arch at all. Not uh, totally outside my wheelhouse. <laughs> like I, I just I've never used Arch. I have no idea what to tell you. Yeah, I, I haven't. So our, our like um... Arch changes a lot, so I'm not sure how running ZFS on that is going to go. Our uh, our open broadcast machine that we've been running in production uh, since April runs Arch with ZFS. So this is uh, September. It's a zoo. Is this, what month is this? This is it's October. October. The end of October. It's not even a cheese. So we've been running it since April um, in production 24-7. And I would say the only thing I would probably advise you is don't 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 set up your root partition on ZFS. Go ahead and use Extended 4 or ZFS yeah, or, or Extended 4. Extended 4 or, or XFS. Eh, maybe skip ButterFS. But Definitely go ahead, skip ButterFS. Go ahead and use Extended 4 or uh, XFS for your root and your boot and then your data partitions. You go ahead and use ZFS. And I can tell you, if you do that so far on Arch, we've had no issue. Um but yeah, I would not probably use FreeNAS with the intention of using it as a workstation. Uh, Luca, if if I could if I could wave a magic wand and grant you new hardware and grant you funds to take take care of all this stuff, I would probably separate those jobs out. I would probably build a FreeNAS server and then and then just build a separate workstation. <laughs> I, I know or, it, you know keep your current machine as a workstation or whatever. Yeah. yeah, I know it seems convenient, but long term, once you get like family members using it, you get Plex and and Sick Rage and Sab NZB and and maybe a few other things, and you're starting to automate a few things. It's just it's a nightmare when it's in your own system. So consider that, Luca. But yeah, yeah, probably so. All right. So at John the nice guy writes in with some home server backup help, and he's got a neck. He's got a knuck. Running his uh, home server with Ubuntu fourteen oh four, which he's got some VMs on there and all kinds of stuff. Now, Alan, this but is yeah, so basically he quickly filled up the three hundred gigs of SATA storage he had in the NUC. Yeah, and then he added a one terabyte USB three drive. Yeah, and they added another one, and then again, and yeah. So now he's got uh, four one terabyte and one two terabyte external drive plugged into a USB three powered hub, all into this NUC. So all of a sudden, his, his tiny knock has grown five giant hard drives sticking out of it. Uh, and he, say, he says, I think I should probably move to some kind of rateable file systems because if any one of these external drives dies, I lose all the data that's on it. Yeah. Uh, and he says, if only to give myself a little headspace if I have a disk failure. But the other advantage, obviously, is that you get into this situation where you have, say, 100 gigs free on each of those five drives. And then you have this thing you want to store that's 150 gigs. And how are you going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love about ZFS. You don't run into this problem of having 
multiple file systems and partitions. You can have all your separate your stuff separated in nice chunks, but you share the free space across all of them. Just beautiful. Uh, so he asks, how could I move to doing ZFS? Because uh, obviously he's got all this data and nowhere to put it. Well, he so he can't just you know wipe out four of the one terabyte drives and make a nice RAID Z one or something, right? Uh, so yeah, that can be complicated. Uh, so you could, uh, and he talks a little bit, you know, uh, free up enough space to clear up one of the one terabyte drives and make that as a single drive ZFS, and then you can fill that up with a terabyte of data to free up a second one of the drives, and then add that. Uh, in striping, basically, giving you the second terabyte. Uh, and then move some data off. Now you've freed up a third one, but if you, you could add that to, to upgrade the very first drive to a mirror now, so it's redundant, uh, but now you have no more free space to free off your last one terabyte and two terabyte drives. Uh, right? So you're starting to run into trouble there. Um, the problem is only with mirrors can you kind of do this one drive at a time type of a yep, setup. Yep. I was just going to ask you that. Uh, so, yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to move to something like that in place. Uh, but ZFS is probably your best option, although kind of what I'd recommend is consider getting uh, a real chassis to be your NAS uh, and putting all those drives in it rather than having it all depend on USB 3. Yeah, I, I like USB 3 is better than USB 2, but I just I've never liked USB connected hard drives. It just seems bad. If if you're gonna ask me if I could if I was gonna rely on the Ethernet connection and iSCSI or NFS versus USB, I would go with the Ethernet connection and iSCSI and or or and or NFS any day of the week. And so if you could get an external array that puts all these things together and allows you to access them as LUNs or even mount them externally, I think that would be a much, much superior solution because I, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe John the nice guy has had different experience. I've got uh, one, two, I've got three U- uh, NUCs in production here where their USB ports are getting maxed out and often one of the devices randomly fails to show up after boot. And I, maybe you maybe your NUCs don't have that issue. Maybe you got one of the new NUCs. I don't know. But for me, uh, when it comes to a NUC, an Intel NUC, the USB ports I use for peripherals for like mouse and keyboard, and I just do not rely on it for storage. Well, that, that's the thing I've run into. Is like, well, first of all, the point of the NUC is to be small. So if you got a giant hub and five hard drives hanging off it, you kind of defeated the point of having a NUC in the first place. Okay, yeah. Right? You, can, you can just get an i3 yeah. in the tower and solve this yeah. problem. Um, um, but yes, it's like not enough USB ports. Like I had to use a hub just to be able to connect the mouse, the keyboard, the remote control so I can control the mouse without having to get up and use the mouse on the TV. I could do it from the couch. And then I had to have a USB sound card because I wanted 5.1. Uh, and then I think there's a fifth device, and it says and like add a USB port really quickly. Yeah, and, and some of the devices are fat and kind of would block the other ports if you plugged them directly into the NUC. I can tell you, you know, I've got like a two-year solution at Angela's house where she's got a NUC, and then it connects over NFS to a device that's actually properly managing the disk. And mm-hmm. the NUC is just a, a front end that runs all of the user land applications. Well, that's, that's what mine is. Like uh, I my my NUC connects to my TV, and it yeah. Over the gigabit Ethernet connects yeah. to yeah. the the uh, ZFS machine in my basement that's got six three terabyte drives. Yeah, I like that. 
All right. Our next feedback came in from our TechSnap Reddit. Text- oh, sorry. He had a second question. Oh, okay. Go ahead. He says, uh, I'm using Dropbox Pro, the one terabyte option, to store yes. all the photos that I, my wife, and my children take uh, on their phones and tablets uh, and sync to the home server. So that I know, you know, should the worst happen, I still have a backup somewhere. But I know uh, Dropbox isn't really a backup service. It's a sync service. And I really should also copy data to something else. He says, I have a Raspberry Pi 3 that I'm happy to ship to my brother's house and another one terabyte external drive. Dude, stop with the external drives. And I've heard that you mentioned about ZFS sensible image mirroring. Um, but would the RPI 3 work with ZFS? So the RPI 3, because it is 64-bit, might, although it's not well supported yet. Uh, but eventually an RPI 3 might be a reasonable ZFS device. Uh, you can just use rsync as well. Uh, you know, eventually our sync is slower if you have a lot of small the picture, a lot of small files, and it has to walk them all constantly. Mm. Uh, whereas if you do uh, ZFS, it knows only these blocks have changed, and it can do it instantly. But with a small enough set of files, our sync is fine because your pictures are probably averaging relatively large, like a megabyte a piece or something. Our sync is probably fine, uh, but when you get a lot of like four kilobyte files or smaller, our sync really quickly turns into a dog. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <clears throat> I like it, and uh, I would really oh, be curious. Sorry, the thing he calls a duck turns out it isn't a nuck. It's a Fujitsu Esprimo. What? No, that ruins everything. No! Because it's got an actual i3 rather than a, a nuck CPU, too. What are you talking about? My nuck? There's nucks with i3. Well, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh, I see. Down below, he says, ah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an a, 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 a Fujitsu Espresso. It's, it's, it's like a knock, but it's not a knock. <laughs> yeah, it's like a knock knockoff, like a like a rebranded knock. Yeah. yeah. All right. So it's funny I, that knock, the stupid name that they came up with, has actually become the verb or the, the general noun for it. It's the next unit of computing, Alan. It's it's next. <laughs> okay, so I still um, got to get my compute stick to work. It's stupid because it has a thirty-two bit EFI, but then boots a sixty-four bit OS. Uh, I love this one. I, th- I think it's from. I think his probably name is Jeremy. So I'm going to say from Jer. Uh, well, it says Jeremy at the bottom, but yeah. Oh, it does. Okay, he says. Uh, he, I, and I, I, the actual reason I wanted to uh, to cover this in the show is it'll be pre, it'll be obvious when I read the headline. I'm leaving my company and I want to document IT for the next admin. Man, right there when I saw that, I was like, yes. All right, let's talk about it's, it's, this. Thank you. Uh, yes, yes. Thank you. He says I'm an embedded software engineer and I've given notice at a small engineering firm. I've worked at it for about five years. Being a small company, we've never had anyone dedicated to maintaining our IT infrastructure, so much of the responsibility of keeping our internet running has fallen on me. I'll be the first to admit that I'm not especially a good sysadmin, (laughs) but I knew Linux and I knew networking well enough to make things work, and we got by. The administrative needs for our internet aren't all that extensive. Just things like Samba servers, source control, repo servers, company wikis, bug trackers, VPNs, Wi-Fi, firewall, you know, the basics. In the remaining time before I leave, I'm trying to document the current state of our network and servers so I can best help the next guy or gal and give them a fighting chance. And I really think this is probably something all of us think about from time to time, even when we're fantasizing. He says, I'm not sure we'll be taking over these responsibilities. Uh, so my question for the group is, and this is available and open on the uh, TechSnap subreddit, 
if you've been the new guy coming into managing a company's corporate IT, what kind of information do you wish your predecessors predecessors had left? And thanks in advance, Jeremy. This is a yeah. great so, question. Number one thing is uh, you should have started in the beginning when you were building the Samba servers and so on and documented it just for yourself even. Uh, it's a lot harder to do this at the end in a rush like this. But thanks for at least trying. Uh, like some of the people say, um, some kind of password vault because there's passwords you totally forgot about that you even have. Uh, so trying to go through it, make sure that you give it hand over every password that they might need because there's definitely some that you forgot. <laughs> yeah, I like Blueskin here. Blueskin says passwords. Make sure it has everything. Uh, if your SSH key isn't user, etc., get all of that stuff in there. If you have any personal stuff, get it documented or get it changed. Overview of services that they rely on. Support contract info. Infrastructure weaknesses. And also list of future to-dos, plans, or ideas and processes. Like anything yes, you have to do when you create a new adding user. New people. Yeah. Uh, you know, think about the kind of things you had to do like once a week or more or, or even once a month. Things that they're likely going to have to do their first month. Uh, make sure they have tips on how to do those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, big thing is like anything you did that's weird uh, or like even, you know, you set up the firewall and the Wi-Fi and the VPN. But on the VPN, we turn on this weird option or like, you know, we compiled our Samba server with this extra feature. Uh, having a list of those is quite useful as well. Yeah, I would also say uh, anything that helps with like uh, things that will come down the road, like a domain name registration and the logins you use for that. Start yes. start plugging uh, all that stuff somewhere. Always forget. It's like, oh, the guy who has the do- uh, login for our domain registrar isn't here anymore, and <laughs> yeah. now nobody can renew our yeah. domain name. Yeah, that's awful. As like, any of that kind it's of stuff. one thing when it's done maliciously to like hijack the thing or whatever, but it's another yeah. one when it's just done because yeah. they forgot. Nobody's got contact information for the guy that's moved yeah. on and. You know, he moved to another country to work somewhere else. Yeah, and if there's something weird like you batch process every 24 hours instead of every two hours, which everybody wants, and if there's some real good reason for that, document that as well. Because um, I will tell you this, as somebody who specialized in coming in after the IT guy got frustrated and left, it is. Um, it took all of the self-control I had not to consistently blame the past IT guy. I would always be in the position where I would have to figure out, God, what was this guy? What, what was he thinking? Why, why did he do this? And my initial reaction would be, well, he was a dumbass. He's a dumbass that has no idea what he's doing, and that's why he did this because he's a stupid dumbass. But then later, which sometimes is true, and it's yeah. You know, sometimes in this it case, it's, it's a developer trying to pretend to be a sysadmin. Yeah. and the new person that is, is an actual sysadmin. Although but. sometimes, every now and then, I get into it. And I'm like, oh. Because they ran into this, and then they discovered this, and this son of a bitch wants it by this time, so they had to do this. Oh. And if you could just document those kinds of moments, the kinds of moments where you went, oh, that would be really helpful because it'll help save your own name as well. (laughs) I can just say somebody who's been in that position a lot. All right. Our last feedback, and I know we have not gotten to all of them, and we need even more. It's ridiculous. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contacts. We're recording a double next week. But I like this one from Fish Damon. He says, I'm using AWS NFS managed services called... EFS, because, of course, you want to call it something else. I want to use it to store and build artifacts for geo.cd. The problem is, when I mount that NFS share, it has eight exabytes of free storage, the number of bytes overflow, <laughs> and <he's laughs> he says that he uh, this is two to the 63rd power. Is that what that is right there? 
Damn. That's, that's what an exit is. Yeah, that's not going to work so well. He says, uh, assigned long is what uh, Go is using to check available storage. And since it overflows, Go believes I have less than 100 megabytes free storage and it pauses all of my builds. Now, so here's a quick question. Does it solve the problem if you just create an empty 150 megabyte file so that number no longer overflows? Hmm. It's <laughs> a good question. I know it's a terrible, terrible hack. But so, does it solve the problem? I wonder also, I was gonna, okay, so I was going to recommend loopback devices, and that's what I was going to go with. Okay. That is a funny well, problem. Some people are talking about uh, creating a loopback device on that eight terabytes of storage. Oh, yeah? Yeah. To create a smaller file system and then have Go use that. But that's adding a whole extra layer of abstraction. It's yes. terrible. Yeah. Whereas creating a 150 megabyte file with like truncate that's just using up enough space to get the free space number to stop overflowing. The problem is if something looks at the size of the disk number and sees it as 100 megabytes, then it could cause problems. Yeah, yeah. Eight ekabytes, uh, exabytes. If you have an idea, uh, techsnap.reddit.com by Fishdemon and uh, maybe jump into the uh, subreddit thread there. <laughs> That's a problem that not most of us have probably run up against. So I'd love to know if some TechSnap audience members have that one. Now, your question, it could be in our inbox or it could be just waiting to be answered. Please go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, or if you need to email us directly, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with all the feedback done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yep, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these came from our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. I believe this first one did, as a matter of fact, from Forbes, but it was linked to us by our subreddit. The feds walk into a building and demand everyone's fingerprints to get access to their phone. Uh, This is uh, something that Forbes found out as a basically doing some legitimate journalistic digging and looking at a court filing dated May 9th, 2016, in which the Department of Justice sought to search the Lancaster, California property. But there was a more remarkable aspect of the search. As pointed out in the memorandum, authorization to depress the fingerprints and thumbprints of everyone who is located in the subject's premises during the execution of a search and who is reasonably believed by law enforcement to be the user of a, f- of a fingerprint sensor-enabled device that is located at the subject's premises and falls within the scope of the warrant. So essentially, they're able to bust in, and everyone in the room had to log into their phones as well, part see, of the Well, see, that's warrant. not... Well, yes, but, well, so the warrant says for, it was for specific devices, and they shouldn't have been able to get the fingerprints of anybody except for the people that would actually unlock the devices they were after. But... It was just broad enough they could misinterpret it to take everybody's fingerprints. Yeah, well, they actually— In particular, they're like, well, we don't know which fingerprints unlock which device, yes. so we just want everybody. They want all of them. That's actually what they say in the thing is they don't know which ones unlock which and which ones they need, so they got all of them. That's bad. Yeah, that is weird. All right, so—, so You know what? What's something that we do every week uh, that apparently we shouldn't? <laughs> That's uh, type while using Skype. Okay. All right. Uh, we so, researchers have released a paper called "Don't Skype and Type: Acoustic <laughs> Eavesdropping Over VoIP." Oh crap! So it turns out, when using Skype or any other voice over internet protocol services, uh, the attacker could record the emanations from your keyboard and uh, use previous work in this field to analyze the sounds and accurately guess what you were typing. Mm-hmm. I think I, I could. pretty fast. I you yeah, but your keyboard is loud. 
I feel like if I had a yes, sound my profile, keyboard is very loud. Yeah, if I knew which keys made which sound, I might be able to crack it. <laughs> All right, how about this one? Uh, this one's great because what did I just type. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck no. Uh, Andre Trojan asked victims to submit a selfie while holding their ID card. <laughs> yeah, this and then I, they were using that. New level. Yeah, they were using that to to social engineer somebody else. <laughs> Pretending to be the person holding the ID and everything. So basically, uh, if you're watching the video version, you see what they do. But they have a nice blue outline character holding a thumbs up that's holding their identity card. It's all nice and outlined. It looks very web, I don't know, 5.0. And it's just so catchy. How could you not do it? And uh, that is, at least according to McAfee, uh, a, a, uh, it's, it's mainly targeting China. But, you know, that stuff starts there. And the stuff's written in English. It could move around. Look at that, Alan. So they, that really, if I saw that screen, I would think that looked legit because it looks like you're paying a graphic artist to design the screen that's prompting me for my information. Yep. All right. Okay. Okay. So self-checkout skimmers have gone Bluetooth. Yes. So this one's really uh, awesome. This is a rather crude video of somebody trying to, basically as a marketing video, trying to sell their Bluetooth skimmer. <laughs> Uh, so it's an overlay skimmer that sits over top of uh, the self-checkout lanes at something like a Walmart uh, and then uses Bluetooth to send the data off. So basically, the skimmer can be really slim, the part that goes on top that people might notice, uh, because all the bulkier electronics are uh, connected via Bluetooth and are you know stashed behind the device or something. Hmm. Hmm. Of course. Of course, Alan. Of course. And uh, there's a whole big teardown of it and uh, all the steps you could look at to try to to um, be able to tell when you're looking at one of these things whether it's an overlay or not. Basically, if the thing looks fatter than it should, because otherwise it looks identical. It's just every bit is a bit wider so it fits over top of the old one. So the lesson there is uh, if it looks suspicious, just go with your gut. Really. Yep. Or, yeah. you know, always grab and wiggle. Grab <laughs> Alan Jude says, always grab and wiggle from TechSnap. <laughs> I, I, I put this in here because I thought you might be, I don't know, for some reason, excited about this. Best Buy and Google are going to open up 14 new stores across Canada. You ready to go get your Pixel XL in person? So now, are they just opening like Google Store inside the Best Buy or are they opening new Best Buys? Uh, it's an innovative partnership, according to the uh, well, two companies. The interesting thing is Best Buy just closed a bunch of stores here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they, they uh, years ago they bought Future Shop, was a Canadian brand of store, yeah. and eventually they decided, all right, these Future Shops will turn into Best Buys, and the rest of them were closing, and we're not giving the employees any notice. She's like, I, yeah, don't come into work. Uh, we'll pay you for the next week, but uh, your store is closed. I and don't, you're out of a job. I don't think any of these are near you. So Best Buy has sent a list of the full ten Google Shops opening today. They're located within the company's newly renovated Experience stores. Right, so this is a little store inside the bigger store, and it's yeah. only in their flagship-ish stores, so yeah. Not, not, not like the Apple store like the article tries to make it sound. Yeah. yeah, But you can still go look at a Pixel in Canada. I probably could have done that at any of the 12 phone stores in the mall. Yeah, so nothing That's the other thing if I were Why are there so many stores that sell phones? Like, yeah. Obviously, we're paying too much for phones if they can support that large of a sales. <laughs> yeah, just get it from the Play Store, right? Um, all right. So this is buy it from Ting. This, there you go. This is a good recommendation. Take care in choosing your storage drives. Flash, Rust, MCS, SMR, PMR, TDMR, Hammer, and of course QLC. Oh my! Yes. Uh, 
you know, all the different options for hard drives. Right? You can get your regular flash, which is like your SSDs, spinning rust that we have over a while. Uh, then they have these uh, memory class uh, storage. What? It's storage class memory. They get that written backwards. Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> uh, I think there's uh, that one might mean something else. Then you have your regular, uh, the newer shingled magnetic storage or, uh, recording, yep. which we've yep. seen, uh, but you really, really don't want those. No. Uh, PMR, or perpendicular magnetic recording, which is the thing Seagate invented and we've been using for years now. That's how hard drives got as big as they are now. Then you have your uh, TDMR, which is, what the hell does that mean again? <laughs> Oh, man. I know we've covered uh, it. I yes. know we have. Two-dimensional magnetic recording. Well, and that does not your, ring a bell, actually. Yeah. Uh, then you have your green drives that rotate at different velocities. And then you have your helium-filled drives. And then we have hammer, which is the heat-assisted magnetic recording, which is something CBA's been working on but hasn't quite uh, standardized yet. Because, you know, using a laser to heat up the, uh, the material before you write to it uh, makes you can write more densely. But... It also means you have to heat it up, and I'm guessing the metal doesn't like being heated up and cooled down frequently, uh, and so on. And you have all these different types of drives, and then we have new now the QLC, or uh, quadruple-level cells. So this is new kinds of flash that's a little bit different. In particular, you, it means you can get an NVMe-type device that's like terabytes in size, like huge, but you it's, it wears out really quickly. So you can only write to it, like if, if it's a... I think the one Netflix is looking at, which is probably really extreme end of this, is like 100 terabytes on one PCI card or PCI Express card. But you cannot write more than a third of the drive per day or you'll wear it out. Oh. Right. Well, like obviously you could fill the whole drive in a day. But the idea is that over the span of like the two or three year span of the device, if you write to more than the whole device ever, you know, you can only write point yeah. three of the device per day, or you'll wear out all the cells. Okay. So for Netflix, it works fine because right, they load up the movies, and the movie never changes. Eventually, they maybe want to swap out some movies, but they can easily say, "All right, we're only going to write this much data uh, per day to this device," and then they yeah. get those super high read speeds, so like four plus gigabytes a second. Okay. So it I could great even for that kind of appliance. I could even picture for home, them. It's probably terrible. Yeah, because see, with somebody with like somebody with a company like Netflix, or actually even JB, you know, once once you have an episode in your system, or once you have a movie in your system, the licensing may come and go, and you can stream it or not stream it. But that doesn't necessarily mean you delete it or not delete it. You just might make it unavailable. I mean, you're not, not going to you know go and edit the middle of that episode suddenly because that's right. not how it works. Yeah, exactly. That's very yeah, no. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for certain types of workloads, that seems to make sense. And yeah, it's basically kind of. It's not the same thing, but it's kind of almost your your shingled magnetic storage idea, but for flash. Yeah. Just really low endurance flash. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it now means that you really have to watch out when you go to buy something because it's like, well, do I want you know SSD or NVMe or do I want SMR or PMR or TDMR or HMR? More and more complicated. Uh, do, do I want single level, multi-level uh, uh, or quadruple level cells? Or is, is uh SLC, MLC, TLC, and QLC. Uh, and the more levels you get, the more storage you get, but less endurance. So most things are MLC now. Uh, like your high-end enterprise stuff is mostly MLC. So you get two levels there um, because SLC is just too expensive. Uh, but when you get into TLC and QLC, you're getting a lot more storage, but it's only going to last so long. Depending on your workload, maybe it's long enough. Maybe it's not. <laughs> 
that is up for you to decide. Mm-hmm. You know, this has been a fascinating story. I, I guess it could be Snowden all over again, except for it didn't make it that far. But prosecutors say that a contractor from Booz Amel, Booz Amel Ham- Hamilton? Uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. Thank you. Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, yeah, this, just like Edward Snowden was, um, has stolen 50 terabytes of data from the NSA. And this is almost unfathomable. It, it, unless you under, unless you... Unless you understand that this person was potentially just a data hoarder. Um, and it just seems amazing to, to get to this level. But apparently the contractor, Harold T. Martin III, is accused of stealing thousands of highly classified documents, computers, and storage devices during his tenure at the agency. <laughs> so he took hardware, data, computers, and storage devices – the charges, which have been uh, reported by the Washington Post this week, outline a far deeper case than first thought compared to the felony theft and a lesser mis- misdemeanor, which would – this would put him way beyond anything that Snowden ever stole. Fifty – what do they say? It's just unbelievable really actually. Fifty terabytes? It seems almost impossible to move 50 terabytes of data without being noticed. That's incredible. And uh, they're going to charge him under the Espionage Act. Which sort of seems like it might be setting up sort of the parameters for the stone suit, which is fascinating. All right. Uh, we, it wouldn't be a proper roundup without a story from Schneier on security. What do we have here? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Schneier's got a lead on a virtual kidnapping scam that's going on. Using information they garnered from social media and other things to get enough information about somebody's, you know, mm-hmm. teenager or older child. Yeah. And then call their parents and say they kidnapped them and then, then you want some money. This is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So the mom got a picture of her daughter, texted her in the middle of a virtual kidnapping scam where it shows their daughter is snatched up or something like yes. that. It's so just, you get the phone call and hear some screaming that maybe sounds like your kid and then say, you know, the voice comes on, I'll take is like, we have your kid and, you know, we want some money or you can't have him back. Sounds like a movie plot. Yep. It's creepy. So a lot of rumors and a lot of smoke around the new uh, blockchain platform being developed by banks. And now today, Reuters is pointing out that they will be releasing it as, quote unquote, open source. This is a blockchain platform being developed by a group that includes more than 70 of the world's biggest financial institutions. And that is a journalistic uh, short code for you should probably Google the people behind this. And in what could be the industry standard for the nascent technology called blockchains. From the article, they say the Corda platform has been developed by a consortium brought together by the New York-based financial technology company R3. What could go wrong, everybody? It represents the biggest shared effort among banks, insurers, and fund managers – all people I love, and other players to work using the blockchain technology in financial markets. This sounds great. Blockchain, which originated in the digital currency Bitcoin, in case you didn't know, works as a web-based transaction technology. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So what the big thing is, they're not using the blockchain to run a currency. No. They're using it to basically keep a log or ledger that can't be modified and that can be proven. It makes perfect sense. I uh, agree. And so not, I was curious. It's not helping. It's it, nothing to do with Bitcoin. No. It's just using that kind of technology yes. to create a transaction record a that no ledger. one can modify. Yeah. And, and so I was actually why I put that. I was kind of curious what you thought about this. Do you, I mean, yeah, part of me is like, gosh, I wish they weren't reinventing their own thing. I wish they weren't going to like do something outside of, blo- of the Bitcoin blockchain. But at the same time. Is it that unreasonable to take lessons learned from a solid technology and implement mm-hmm. a public? Yeah. Um, 
I don't know that you needed to use the blockchain for this. You know, there are already verified timestamp type things you can yeah. do for this to prove the timestamp and that the message hasn't been modified. Uh, because, you know, security devices have been using that for like login records for a long time. But, you know, it's it seems like the unfortunate thing is that too many people think that as soon as they hear blockchain, they immediately think that they're making a currency. And mm. it's like, well, no, you can use blockchains to chain any block of anything yeah. together. Yes. You you could make a blockchain file system. Uh, it just means you could never, you know, modify the old blocks of a file. And I think it seems obvious that some of these companies would want to get together and use this technology. So I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I just think it's worth noting as it as it moves forward. Do you want to talk about this uh, global sign screw up that cancels uh, lots of website certificates? So global signs, one of the big CAs. So <laughs> yeah. this is basically a thing that hasn't got added to that timeline we just looked at earlier in the show. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. Because it happened this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Global signs efforts as a root certificate authority have gone tits up this afternoon. Oh. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, while trying to uh, change some of their intermediate certificates, they inadvertently triggered the revocation of all of their intermediate certificates when they were trying to actually cross-sign their certificates. Uh, this smashed the chain of trust and uh, basically nullified every certificate issued by GlobalSign since they were all issued from one of those intermediates and they canceled them all. Uh, this will take them days to fix because they basically have to reissue everything and get the certificates out to people. Uh, or they may be able to reissue just the middle certificates, but I'm not sure that that will be that easy. Uh, but they say estimated it will take to the Beginning of next week to uh, get all the websites whose certs were accidentally axed corrected. And uh, they've set up a support page for IT admins and folks looking to help fix their broken certificates. Uh, Global Sign says the wor uh, worldwide mass revocation was an unexpected circum uh, consequence uh, from internal changes they made. And then originally they claimed that browsers and other software had incorrectly inferred that the certificates had been burned. Uh, but they later admitted it was actually their own system that was at fault. And they revoked the certificates. There you go. Uh, if you're not affected by today's outage, probably because you're not using GlobalSign as your uh, CA or you're not using a reseller of them, uh, but consider yourself lucky as the problem won't hit everyone due to the wide range of different uh, certificate authorities and so on. So I, I just threw this one in, in our roundup just as a follow-up because uh, last week we talked about Yahoo turning off their 20-year-old feature about mail forwarding. And this week, I am happy to report that Yahoo has turned it back on. So after their recent... They said they were going to. Yeah, they did. They did. <laughs> and I, you know what? I didn't doubt them at all. But I, it was just bad timing, and that just happens sometimes. Um, but if, you know, after the recent uh, security news and all of that, you wanted to move off of Yahoo, they they do now have the uh, automatic forwarding turned back on. Good guy, yeah, Yahoo, I, I right? that is an uh, explanation of why it was broken as well, right? Oh, did they put that in there? I did not uh, see that. I didn't see it in that. Yeah, not in that, but they might have in a separate post. I think there was one somewhere. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, and we end the TechSnap roundup with a tweet. Ladies and gentlemen, password is being used by another user. Yeah, so it shows a password box highlighted in red, and it wouldn't let the guy set his password because that same password is in use by another user, which, uh, first of all, shows that this guy is obviously not using a very good password. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, that the uh, – oh, apparently he's a developer at Mojang. That, uh, <laughs> Nothing. The, the pay no attention. Minecraft people. Yeah, pay anyway, no attention. Uh, but yeah, so he found this, and uh, obviously it means that they're storing passwords 
not encrypted because they can easily compare to somebody else's password. Yeah. Now, in the comments, somebody says, oh, well, maybe they could just compare the hashes. It's like, well, if you're doing cryptographic password hashing correctly, there's a unique per-user random salt that would make sure that two users with the same password don't have the same salt uh-huh. so that when someone's brute forcing them and they do crack one user's password, they don't get every other user who has the same password. So that's what I thought, too. So they're outing themselves right here, essentially. Yes. Well, obviously, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and yes, they've added themselves. Like, they're, they're like, oh, we'll make it secure by making sure no two users can use the same password. That'll like, do it. Actually, what you've done is uh, made a terrible, terrible system. <laughs> it's awful. And now I can use it to figure out which password your users are using, you stupid sons of bitches. It is a bad system. Well, yes, that's the other thing is someone could just brute force a bunch of yes. passwords. And, and, find, yeah. and then all they have to do is guess the username. Yeah, you could probably get like the top 20 user passwords <laughs> using a system like this. Uh, it's just stupid. So don't do this. Don't don't be like them. Don't do that. And that's no. why we have this. Use B correct or shop five twelve correct. Yeah. Nothing else is acceptable. <laughs> now uh, nothing else is acceptable. That's why we feature it. We have it linked in the roundup. If you want to link to if you want to click on anything or look at the notes of anything we've talked about, all of that will be busted out in the TechSnap two eighty nine show notes. Just go over to JupiterBroadcasting.com and look at all of Alan Jude's copious notes over there. Alan, is there anything else we want to talk about this week? Uh, nope, but make sure you tune in early next week for the double episode. Yeah, we'll be doing the double, which I think we usually start at, what, 11 a.m. JB time? Yep. Yeah. Uh, you can get all that converted over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Two hours earlier than normal, yeah. basically. So yep. that helps. Yeah. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Oh, watch out that the UK time change is coming up soon, oh, right? Oh, man. Oh, is that happening? That is the worst yeah. thing ever. Well, do you know it's where I think I know it's. I, I don't know if it happens this year, but in the last two Meet BSDs, the time change has been in the middle of the conference. That's a one day in one time and one time. It won't happen this year, I think, because it changes Saturday night into Sunday or Sunday okay. morning, basically. Yeah. And the conference is Friday Saturday instead of Saturday Sunday this time. Yeah. So we won't actually suffer from. That. Okay. Although it means if you like me, say, have to catch a plane the next day. Yeah. Make sure you show up at the airport at the right time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I hate it. I hate that. I hate all of that. And it's all a construct that us stupid hairless monkeys have created, and we bust it all at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. That's where you can see the TechSnap Lifetime, even when we're doing an early show. Great chance to send in your emails and all of that. And don't forget, you can also submit content directly into the show at techsnap.reddit.com. That's it. That's all you have to do to show up, watch the show, submit content. And don't forget, I suppose... If you want, there's that uh, contact form at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. But last but not least, why not subscribe to the RSS feed? You hear us talking about double episodes. You hear us talking about recording early and all that shenanigans, and none of it matters. As long as you're subscribed to the RSS feed, you'll get every single episode of the TechSnap program as it comes out. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>